Revanche says, Neo Erin found me, took me in, and little by little helped Betsy Braddock regain her memory. Also that he could regain the services of Kanon, a woman who was not only his prime assassin, but his lover as well. And Silek goes, no. And Hank's like, wow, this is still really confusing. <laughs> X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is cosplay model Caroline Bird, better known to Twitter as Caroline Cosplays. Caroline, how are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm excited we got to do this. We talked about this like almost a year ago, I think, but I wanted to make sure that there was enough Krakoa era Kanon stuff to talk about before I did her episodes because I, I don't repeat characters. So I wanted her to have her time. And once Hellions was over, I was like, okay, there's tons to talk about with that <laughs> book, which is one of my favorites of God, like the decade, but particularly is my favorite, I think of the current X-Men era. And in part, that's because of the incredible character work it did with Kanon, the character we are here to talk about today, created by Fabian Niciesa and Andy Kubert, initially known as Revanche when she was in Betsy Braddock's body, but now back in her own body, she has taken the name Psylocke. I love this character. I have always loved this character. Revanche was my username on UncannyXMen.net when I was 12 years old. So I loved her even in the 90s. Fabian was funny about that in his episode because I tried to ask him questions. I know you have a Fabian story also about this <laughs> character, but tried to ask questions. He was like, I think it's adorable that you care about this storyline. <laughs> but I did. So I'd love to talk a bit about you and your history with this franchise, your origin story with the X-Men. You have done a lot of cosplay specifically as Psylocke, both Betsy and now Kanan. But I'd love to hear about the full spectrum of your X-Men journey. Well, I first started in 92. My first comic was Wolverine number 50. And um, it was codenamed Wolverine. So the very the cover looked like... Um, like a record, uh-huh. like a file with a slash mark through it. And I just thought that looked, it just intrigued me. You know, I, it made me want to pick it up and check it out. So I fell in love with Wolverine. I loved it because at that time I was very, I was one of those angry kind of all the time <laughs> people, you know, I always liked characters that are like Raphael from Ninja Turtles because he was an angry one and stuff. Sure. I don't even know what I was angry about. I would just always walk around with a chip on my shoulder, you know? <laughs> And then I discovered that he was part of a team, the X-Men. So I came across X-Men number one. This is when Jim Lee. The know, relaunch. Yeah. Right. And that's when I discovered Betsy Braddock. At that time, I didn't know her backstory. I didn't know she wasn't originally Asian. Most people all. don't. There are a lot of questions about that because I think a lot of Asian American readers had kind of a rude awakening when they got like midway into yeah. their and were like, wait. Repeat that. Go again. I'm sorry. Yeah, it wasn't until later on when <laughs> Condone comes in and I'm like, oh, my God, I felt catfished. You know, yeah. like, here I am. Like, and it, it gives me enough issues, too, between when they introduced um, the new Psylocke and Condone, 
it's where you start. To, I, I kind of really started digging Psylocke, you know, Betsy at the time. And so, you, yeah, at that time, I could understand how everybody starts having these mixed feelings. Which one do you really like? Do you really, did you like her just because she looked Asian or whatever? And so, yeah, I'm in that boat, you know, <laughs> and especially when you find out that not, it wasn't just their it, a simple body swap, like everything was mixed up, their personalities, all their that kind DNA, of DNA, yeah, it's yeah. a whole mess. So it's like, where does it stop and, and begin between the two? Like, which parts do you really like and that were really Betsy and which ones were Canones, you know? Yeah, and I mean, the reason I loved Revanche when she showed up was because I had been reading the 80s stuff as a kid because we had it in my house and I loved Betsy before the body shifting, swapping, et cetera, happened. So when Revanche showed up, it was my Betsy. That's sort of the point of the plot is she shows up and this is when Betsy, well, let's, you know what? Let's start calling them Revanche and Psylocke when we're talking about the 90s because <laughs> otherwise I think it'll get confusing, right? This right. is when Psylocke is trying to seduce Cyclops. It's the lead mm -hmm. up to the wedding of Cyclops and Jean Grey. He is very tempted by Psylocke. She's being extremely seductive. Everybody else on the team is kind of like, I don't know about this ninja lady. Like, they, a lot of them don't know her because she joined the X-Men right before Fall of the Mutants, and then they were in the Outback. So, like, Charles, for example, has never met Betsy until after the body swap. So they're all kind of suspicious of this woman to begin with. Jean is really unhappy with her like continued existence <laughs> and then Betsy apparently shows up in her outback costume the armor with the hooded cloak says I'm the real Betsy this woman Kanon is an imposter about Asian Psylocke and for a long time like a full year it was not clear what the actual truth was right and so it was very cool to me to see the Betsy I liked come back and be doing all of this stuff and has now a cool psychic sword, can do the cool stuff that Ninja Psylocke can do, mm -hmm. but was more recognizably the character that I had enjoyed. And I only found her more interesting once the truth was revealed and we found out who Kanon was originally, what Kanon's backstory was, her relationship with Matsuo, how it all worked in a retcon. So for people who are uh, not familiar, first go back to the very first episode of this podcast where Teeny Howard came on to talk about Betsy Braddock. We talk a lot about Kanon because it's impossible not to when talking about Betsy. The original plan for this body swap storyline was that the hand, Matsuo's people in the hand, their demonic sorcerers and all of that, had performed like magical plastic surgery and brainwashed Betsy and also made her look Asian so that she could infiltrate the underworld in Hong Kong. Jim Lee was the artist at the time, was Korean American himself, and he designed this new character and everybody thought she was so cool that the original plan was when Wolverine snaps her out of it, it was going to be like an illusion and it was going to shatter and she was going to be white Betsy again. But Jim really liked drawing Asian Psylocke and the response from fans had been really positive. So Claremont was like, all right, well, as long as Jim's on the book, who knows if that'll be like a year, two years or whatever, we'll just keep it up and then we'll turn her back whenever Jim's done drawing the book. But then Claremont got pushed out of the book and Jim Lee stayed on the book and then... For 30 years, Betsy just stayed 
Asian. Fabian Nisiesa, who took over the book after Lee's departure, had missed an issue. He talked about this on uh, his episode of this show. He had been working at Marvel, so it was like especially annoying to him that he somehow fucked this up. But he didn't read Uncanny X-Men 255, which is the issue right before the key that breaks the lock where Betsy is transformed. And in that issue... We see white Betsy with her lavender hair has arrived on an island in the South China Sea after stepping through the Siege Perilous. She's found there by Matsuo in, I believe, his first appearance. He says, I know what the hand will do with this woman because she has no memories because when you go through the Siege Perilous, you lose your memories. He missed that page. As far as he was concerned, there had been no explanation of what had happened to Betsy. So he was like, all right, I'm going to do a backstory. I'm going to say there was another woman who was Japanese and their bodies got switched. That's how Revanche Canon comes to be as part of a retcon. And here's the thing. It may be born out of a mistake, but it is one of the most fortuitous mistakes, I think, in the history of this franchise. Nothing wrong with happy mistakes. (laughs) Exactly. You look now 30 years later and we have these two brilliant characters and it's because Fabian did this, because you can have Kanon and you can have both Psylocks. I was like a big Psylocke fan my whole life. One of the most exciting things about the Krakoa era has been seeing both of these characters come into their own in different ways. And particularly through Hellions, seeing Kanon, who was always an aesthetic, a look, mm-hmm. becoming a real person in her own right. And not just that, but one of the most prominent and exciting and interesting heroes in the franchise. I mean, I think her popularity has skyrocketed. It's really cool to see all these new fans really gravitating towards her. Yeah, I agree. Thank you, Fabian. (laughs) (laughs) So how did you get into cosplay? Oh, God. Um, I actually got into it, I think, 2012. I was originally introduced Back in when I was in high school, that was years, years, years ago. Uh, one of my <laughs> friends who uh, I worked with at Sam Goody, he came to work just to use our bathroom. And then he comes out and he's completely decked out as Darth Maul from, mm-hmm. you know, Star Wars and everything. And him and his friends were going to see episode one in the theaters dressed in cosplay. So that was my first, you know, experience with that. Now, my own personal experience, when I finally had the guts to do it myself, was around 2012 um, at a con in Vegas. For the Gen Z, just by the way, Sam Goody was a record store, which is a store that we, we used to have a store that you would go to to buy albums. So Yeah. <laughs> Back in my day. Back in the day. That, yeah. was, that was like, I think they closed those in 2006-ish, like r- right around when I graduated from high school, actually. Yeah. So I went to a convention, my first one in Las Vegas, and talked to one of the cosplayers that they had as guests there. Her name was Riddle. I just kind of talked to her. I told her about my insecurities because I'm, you know, I'm not like the super fit person or anything. You know, I ha- I'm a little soft, you know, around <laughs> the middle and everything. And spandex is not very forgiving. And the pressure on female cosplayers, I think, to look like comic book women is very present and is very unrealistic. I mean, not that it's mm-hmm. realistic for most men to look like the muscle-bound comic book guys either, but female bodies in superhero comics are particularly exaggerated. Waist, hips, boobs, all right. of it. Like, you know, size zero. I remember the handbooks, I would always look at the, like, height-weight ratios that they would give these characters, and it was always, like, 
the women were just like 50 pounds underweight because it was like yeah. no one <laughs> it's like if you do the math on this especially because Betsy and Kanon are both 5'11 they're like yeah. tall women and they're muscular as Psylocke so it was like I don't think she's 120 pounds or whatever it was they said <laughs> right. you know like <laughs> Yeah, like I, I told my insecurities, especially when a lot of female superheroes, they're they don't wear a lot of clothing. No, Psylocke know? wears a leotard with right. straps around her thighs. I mean, it's so, a very skimpy outfit. Yeah, and I'm worried about wedgies and you know all that <laughs> kind of stuff. And she just put my mind at ease, and she's like, you know what, just go for it, you know. So, yeah, the following convention, I just went for it. I went ahead and I bought a costume, my very first costume, just to test the waters. And I ended up loving it. Oh my God, this little girl comes up to me and she wanted to take a picture with me. She's like, Psylocke is my favorite character because purple is my favorite color. You know, and she Mine had Mine like, too. A, That's yeah. part of why Psylocke was always my favorite character. Right. Like purple. So I felt like a Disney princess, like one of those actors that you see at the- Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, amusement parks and everything and it was just so great and she was all showing me her Lockheed toy and everything these purple and I loved it and and so ever since then yeah my very next cosplay I bought the sewing machine made it myself that's so cool I can barely like thread a needle so cosplay is always very I mean particularly I remember when because I work with Teeny and we're good friends and when Betsy's Captain Britain outfit debuted all of these incredible women showed up to cons like in the full look. And I was just mm-hmm. like, how do you even make that? Like, I don't, I don't like it, it's, <laughs> it, it boggles my mind. My friend Kendra actually, who um, was on the sync episode and the Monet episode, she like sews and does cosplay for cons sometimes. And I, I'm always just like, she'll show up. And one year she was like Marjorie Tyrell from game of Thrones and had just done the entire dress. And I was like, how, Oh my God. It's magic to me. Like I don't, even a bathing suit, like Psylocke's outfit, like getting the right color, making it look like the comic book. That to me, that's like a skill set. I could never even, I can barely, you know, fold a towel. So the idea of like making a a pattern and cutting it and all of that is really wild to me. And your stuff looks great. I mean, it looks very professional. It's all trial and error for me. I I was the same way in boot camp. We had to, cut all the, the Irish pendants off of our like buttons and anywhere else you find our, your uniforms. Cause you were military, right? Yeah. And it was to the point where sometimes my buttons would fall off and you can't just take those to the dry cleaners and be like, Hey, can you sew this back on in boot camp? You're doing everything yourself. Right. <laughs> so, oh, I had an attempt. I've never sewn a day in my life before that. I had to attempt to sew on my buttons and they'd be all wonky, all crooked. And you know, <laughs> some of them like, Thank goodness they were like, wait until after inspection to like fall off. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I would, I just learned through like YouTube tutorials and like I said, trial and error. It took a lot of money and fabric messing up all the time. And even I'm still learning now. So (laughs) (laughs) still got the basics, you know. Boot camp was probably something that prepared you for cosplaying Kanon in particular now, because Kanon with those Hellions very much has like drill sergeant energy sometimes, like particularly when she has to get wild child in line or like tell empath to shut the fuck up or whatever. (laughs) Like she's very, she's very like determined and like, I'm in charge. Like I am the alpha. There's that great bit where she, Psylocke's wild child. Yeah, it definitely, you know, going through boot camp, it did give me more of a confidence I didn't have before. I've always been shy and just kind of, I don't know, um, 
an introvert, mm-hmm. you know, and boot camp. Yeah, that definitely it, it gives you a, a bit of a boost. How long were you in the service? Four years. It was in the Marine Corps. That's wow. That's wild. <laughs> I'm like, I, you know, I'm like, I should probably get back in the gym. Like I've never, you know, done Marine boot camp. Well, I actually think just a little out of order here. I want to read one of the questions that somebody sent in because it was sort of posed to you specifically. And I think that this might help ease into the the complicated conversations around this character. I really want this episode is one that I've been really excited about, but also that I've been nervous about because mm-hmm. I started with Betsy. I love these characters. And obviously, if you are a Psylocke fan, like this is the the complicated thing. And I'm glad that we're in a world now where the franchise has dealt with it, but it's very tricky to navigate. So B writes, hi, Connor and Caroline. I've always thought about writing in, but it wasn't until you announced a Conan episode that I knew I needed to. I didn't become an X-Men fan until the Krakoa era because as a Gen Z reader, I came to Marvel through the MCU. And as an Asian American, one of the first X-Men characters I thought to look into was Psylocke. Upon learning from Wikipedia that she was a white woman wearing an Asian woman's skin, I promptly closed the tab and went back to reading Young Avengers. I didn't start reading X-Men until I learned the whole situation had been sorted out, and I didn't warm up to Betsy until the Excalibur issues, 19 and 20, were the two women somewhat reconciled, with Conan basically telling Betsy that dwelling on her own guilt was not helping the situation. Tina gave Conan so much agency in those issues, and the overall reading experience was very cathartic for me and my own experiences. Caroline, I was wondering your thoughts on those issues and if you found the experience of Betsy and Conan reconciling similarly cathartic. I'd also love both your thoughts generally on the Betsy Conan dynamic and whether or not you think they should team up once they're both more healed from the experience. Best B. I definitely did feel cathartic after that because there was just so much, you know, 30 years worth of baggage where you're feeling conflicted about liking Betsy because she's not actually Asian. But how I kind of looked at it is I didn't like Betsy just because I thought she was Japanese. There were other parts of her personality that I really liked. I thought she was, you know, a total badass. I love that she was this adventurous, just full of life woman. She could hold her own against people like Wolverine. And so I thought that was pretty cool. I'm, I'm normally drawn to strong characters like that. I grew up with strong women in my life, you know, my mom, especially. And with Kanon, she is the character that I always wanted at that time early on in the X-Men in the nineties, there weren't really a lot of Asian characters that I could look, you know, that I could really relate to. I feel like we're similar in personality and everything. And she is that strong woman that could hold her own with the other X-Men. And she wasn't some stereotypical Asian either. She wasn't, you know, this, as much as I love Jubilee, she wasn't, you know, a sidekick like her. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't some submissive girlfriend or some evil villain or anything, you know? Yeah. I mean, once Kanon was revealed, once like the truth about revanche became clearer, because basically what happened to go back to the mess of the retcon <laughs> and the mistake that Fabian made is once Fabian realized that he had contradicted Claremont's story by accident, everybody was like, okay, we're going to get, we just got to get rid of this character, which I think is unfortunate mm-hmm. because the year where revanche and Psylocke are both on the blue team is a very cool year I think they're very fun together working together and I actually found the concept of this Japanese woman trapped in Betsy's body to be kind of more interesting than Betsy trapped in the Japanese body because it was sort of like what does it mean to be 
this Japanese assassin who suddenly is like a British noblewoman. Like, that's crazy. We could have really dug into that. Right. It's unfortunate that we didn't. But particularly, there's the, the image that I always think of where, and it's her in her final story, but it's when she tears the bionic eyes out of her own head because she doesn't want to die with like, because she has legacy virus. She doesn't want to die with these foreign objects in her skull. And so she pulls them out and leaves them for Betsy. She's like, these are yours. And <laughs> then she wears this purple blindfold that looks very cool. Like it yeah. sort of waves in the breeze because it has like a long tail on it. And I just remember thinking that she was like one of the coolest characters I'd ever seen. Because then she's got her sword out. She has no eyes. And it was like, in the same way that Daredevil is cool, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's something cool about this person who, or destiny is cool in the same way. Like they can't see, but they're aware of their surroundings in a different way. Toph from Avatar The Last Airbender. Like it's a cool notion. Now there are blind people who find those characters kind of annoying because they don't reflect a a genuine blind experience. So there's that, but I'm a kid. I'm not thinking about that. And I just thought (laughs) this woman was so cool because it also harkens back to the Captain Britain stuff, which I did read pretty young when Betsy's eyes first get ripped out by Slaymaster and she uses other people's eyes telepathically to see. And that's what Kanon starts doing. And her confrontation with Matsuo was just like very cool to me. Like she, she goes to her boyfriend who did all of this and is like, fuck you. <laughs> and I thought that was great. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I love that she goes out on her own terms too. Yes. And I also loved that even though it starts out with a confrontation because they both think they're Betsy, by the end, and this is something where like this you could see as maybe a stereotypically Asian character e, but in the end, Kanon basically is self-sacrificing and says, this isn't Betsy's fault and I'm going to set her free, basically. Mm-hmm. I liked that. I didn't like when the female characters were catfighting all the time. Right. Like, that's not my favorite, particularly in this period. I love the Nisiesa X-Men for the most part, but like the Betsy and Jean stuff where they're fighting over Scott, I'm like, this is not really what I want to be reading. And so seeing Psylocke and Revanche become partners really by the end of that arc, it's them and Gambit always, mm-hmm. which I find really fun. Like they're all, because he's like the thief. The three of them are always sneaking in. There's a whole bit where it's like, Cyclops is like, we're going to go in the front door and we're going to send the Betsy's and Gambit like around the back because (laughs) they're going to, they're sneaky. Like they'll handle it. I found that appealing. Part of why I always liked Betsy in the classic stuff was that she wasn't as capable of fighting in your face in that like really physical way. Mm -hmm. And Revanche was obviously a very skilled physical fighter. That's one of the reasons they go like, well, wait, none of them is really like Betsy before because she couldn't do Kung Fu. Like this is different, Mm -hmm. right? Like she's like a ninjutsu black belt. That's not, you know, but even with that added, there was a carefulness to her. Like she was very methodical in how she would do things. And I like characters like that who plan. Right. She was more strategic. Yes. So I just think it's really cool to have them both back. I just reread Hellions in its entirety, both for this and because Zab Wells is coming on the show for the season two finale in a couple weeks. And I was so struck by 
how different she is from Betsy. One of the data pages early on, Hank says, we must remember that she is not Betsy. And that's for the reader to be like, it's Psylocke, but it's not the Psylocke that you know. But it's also very true because Betsy is an extrovert. Betsy was a supermodel. And that's what I loved about her too. She's what I wanted to be. But Conan is an introvert. Yeah. (laughs) Right? So Betsy was who I always wanted to be because I always wanted to be that extrovert. But Conan is what I actually am is an introvert. Even when I go to conventions, I'm like shaking in my boots until I actually get there. And I feel like, oh, I'm amongst my own people now. And Hellions to me felt like a journey very specifically of this character coming to feel like she has a place in this franchise and among these people. In Fallen Angels, volume two, her debut book in the Krakoa era, which um, we'll get there when we get to, we're going to go chronologically. (laughs) I was not crazy about Fallen Angels. It's not my favorite. Right. I think Brian Edward Hill is an incredible writer. He has said on Twitter, I don't think that book worked. And I'm like, you're absolutely right, sir. But, you know, like there were uh, things that were okay about it. But yeah, overall, it wasn't my favorite either. But one thing that I did like is there's a moment where she says to Laura and the others, my name is Psylocke. You may know this body, but you don't know me. Mm-hmm. Going from that where like in fallen angels she says betsy braddock was the hero i was the shell that she inhabited to the end of hellions where she's like confronting cyclops and emma telling them basically to go fuck themselves leading missions of her own volition claiming the title of captain on krakoa a place that initially she had felt unwelcome in saying i am psylocke and i deserve to be here I have found that really moving because you go to after she came back in Mystery and Madripoor and then the Rosenberg Uncanny Run, she pops up in a couple issues and she's fun there, but every character is constantly making jokes, like calling her Betsy or like saying, I think Emma refers to her as Betsy's sexy half or whatever, (laughs) which is funny. Like she's making fun of Betsy, but it also is making Conan like an accessory yeah. To Betsy's narrative. And so seeing this story where when Betsy and Conan do interact in Hellions, it's in the context of the murder world storyline that's all about Conan. Betsy is a monster in that's like literally in that story. And it's not about Betsy's feelings. And as B points out, even in the Excalibur arc, which is about Betsy's feelings, part of the point there is that like, Betsy, your feelings are not the most important thing in the world all the time. <laughs> you have to you have to calm down and like let this woman B. To answer B's question about whether they should team up, I loved those issues of Excalibur. I would love to see mm-hmm. her do a guest spot in Knights of X at some point. I would love to see them together. I'd still love to see a giant size X-Men, Captain Britain and Psylocke at some point. That's just like them on an adventure together. Mm-hmm. Because after everything that happened in Excalibur and Hellions, I do feel like they are sort of like sisters Now it's like, we didn't ask for this. We just Mm -hmm. happened to be here and we're connected and we're like family in that way. We can never escape each other. What does that mean? Maybe we should like get to know each other. Yeah, like they're connected, but they still don't know each other. They don't really know each other, right? But at the same time, they know each other really intimately. They've lived in each other's bodies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's something really interesting about, about that dynamic. Yeah. I think that 
for all of the fans who loved Betsy as Ninja Psylocke, I understand like why some of those people are disappointed in the way that the character has changed, but Mm -hmm. I think it's for the best. And I think that the connection that Zeb and Teeny built between them has meant that Psylocke is always going to be part of Betsy's story. It's just that Psylocke is that character. Psylocke Mm -hmm. is this person who we're getting to know now really for the first time because Revanche doesn't appear that much before she dies. So it's almost a corrective. It feels like for 30 years, Marvel did not know what to do about this because Psylocke was such a popular character. And as you point out, there weren't that many Asian characters, period. So Psylocke for a long time was like the most famous Asian superhero. Which is crazy. <laughs> yeah. It was yeah. Like, and, but it's getting, it started getting better with Karma and all them coming in. When Karma got to be more prominent again in the mm-hmm. aughts with when Fractions brought her back in and then Zeb yeah. Wells did a lot of cool stuff with Karma and his. So that's great. Run. But yeah, they definitely needed to go back and fix this. Yeah. I remember I was talking to pro once I'm not going to say his name if he doesn't because I don't know if he wants me to but who's Asian American somebody who's worked at Marvel and he was like yeah I feel like they tried to fix it by having Betsy get really into kimonos and stuff and I was like that just makes it weirder oh, like don't yeah. like like it's not it's not better to have her like lean into the culture because it's not yeah it just underlines that it's not hers you know it just I I wouldn't have had so much of a problem with it if it would have been a short story and then they fixed it at the end. Right, because then you go back and it's like that time the Punisher was turned black for like a couple issues by a bad... Like there's weird... Mm -hmm. There are weird... Like Lois Lane was black for an issue once. Like there are weird stories where it's like we're talking about race and it's a thing that happens, but they're brief stories. This is my entire life almost. Like that body Mm -hmm. swap happens in 1989. I'm born in 1988. I was 30 when Jim Zub fixed it in Mystery Madripoor. That's nuts. That's fully crazy. Yeah. But yeah, I would love like a road trip between her and... Same. Like a miniseries or something. It would be so fun. Like you could call it Psylocke's even. And it could be like Psylocke and Captain Britain. I'd also, though, I would love to see, personally, I'd love to see Conan on the flagship X-Men team. Yeah. I think that if that happens, then the X-Men and the Knights could have a team up or something. That would be fun because then you could Mm -hmm. see them both leading, you know? Yeah. Because I think that what Hellions really did, and that's why it's so cool to see her getting this great captain role on Krakoa, it emphasized that she is a great leader. And Mm -hmm. that is something that in X-Men comics is like a rare gift that certain people have. You look at Storm mm-hmm. or Cyclops, like they're leaders. It's like a thing. And right. I feel like Kanan has become one of those characters. And that's exciting too. And it helped her as well learn that she could be a, a good leader because yes. she was reluctant at first. She's like, I'm not, you know. That's not what I'm here for. And then by the yeah. end of Hellion, she's like, my people want XYZ to Cyclops. Mm-hmm. Like my, like, and it's very much, this is my team. And I demand respect from the council. I demand respect from you. Mm-hmm. This is not some bullshit assignment that you gave me because you know that Sinister and I get along for some reason or whatever, you know, like. Right. So 
I'm excited to see where that goes. I also think that that helps with some of the pitfalls of Asian female characters often being more... I mean, there's like, we'll get into this later because some people ask. There's also the dragon lady stereotype of like the tough Mm -hmm. lady who's barking orders. But I think that a lot of the time Asian women in team books can be a more submissive or passive character. And it's very cool to see like, no, Hellions is like X-Men Suicide Squad and she's Rick Flagg. She's the leader. She's calling the shots. The book is theoretically centered around Havoc, but it's more her story than anything Mm -hmm. else. And I just found it so cool. It actually reminded me of the work that Zeb Wells did with Karma in his New Mutants run, where I felt like Karma was a character who was always very passive in the classic stuff and always things were like happening to her, Mm -hmm. but she wasn't really making like strong choices. And particularly those first few arcs of New Mutants and then again at the end with her and Ileana, Karma really comes into her own. And it felt similarly like a lot of repair work was done with this character. And what's nice about that is it feels of a piece with revanche because much like Betsy in Kanon's body felt like she could be sexier because Betsy has always had insecurities about her body also, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, her costumes were all more either flowy or full body. Mm -hmm. And when she was suddenly in this perfectly physically fit body and they put her in a bathing suit ninja costume, she's like, cool, great. I'm gorgeous now. <laughs> you know? I mean, if I switched bodies with Halle Berry or JLo or something. I right. Yeah. Amazing. Like, sure. <laughs> slap a ninja bikini on me. Why not? <laughs> yeah. Right. But, <laughs> <laughs> but in the same way, Kanon in Betsy's body as revanche was very commanding. She had almost like a military bearing to her and mm-hmm. she would hold herself like a fencer. Like it was very much sort of like a formal thing as opposed to, as we learn, Conan like sneaking in the shadows being a ninja. It's nice to see this character getting to lead out in front and not just be a killer in the shadows, you know? Right. I think now might be a good time for us to pause for the Cerebra character file. This one won't be super long because before Krakoa, there just isn't that much to talk about. But let's do it, and then we'll come back. And I took, like, 320 screen caps on Marvel Unlimited for this, of every (laughs) issue that she ever appeared in. I figure we'll just start from the top and and go through all of her famous stories, because, again, there aren't that many of them. Get your thoughts on it. You have a great picture of uh, Fabian signing one of those 90s issues with you. Yeah, X-Men number 21 is what I had him sign. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is like the one where we find out. It's the first time we find out, supposedly, like what had happened. It's when they go to Nyoyurin's house in Japan and like they're yelling at each other and they're both insisting that they're Betsy and it's like a lot (laughs) of fun. Andy Kubert art in that is gorgeous. Yeah. But I know that you had a similar experience where you were like, I love this story. And Fabian was like, really? (laughs) (laughs) So I am going to take us into the Cerebra character file. I will take you through Kanon's complete character history from X-Men 17. I mean, like technically from Uncanny X-Men 255, but in terms of her actual appearances from X-Men 17 in the 90s up through the most recent appearance, which is the Marauders Annual in January. 
I will take you on her journey from Revanche to Psylocke. Then we will come back for more with Caroline Bird. We'll go through Conan's history chronologically, hit all of the major stories and all of the really confusing twists and turns in it. Then we will answer questions from listeners like you. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. The Japanese assassin known only as Kanon is a complex figure in the history of the X-Men franchise, but is most familiar to contemporary readers as the second Psylocke. Created by Fabian Nicieza and Andy Kubert in a retcon, Kanon debuted as the character Revanche, a white British woman claiming to be the true Betsy Braddock. Revanche quickly joined the X-Men alongside the now-Asian Psylocke, with the two bickering for months about which Betsy was the genuine article. After it became clear that Betsy and Kanon's psyches had in fact been jumbled together, Revanche, Kanon in Betsy's body, tragically contracted the legacy virus and died. 24 years of publication later, in the 2018 miniseries Mystery in Madripoor, which also returned Betsy to her original body, Kanon was resurrected, and has since achieved greater prominence than ever before in the first Krakoan age. Taking the codename Psylocke and the iconic Jim Lee Psylocke costume for herself, Conan starred in the series Fallen Angels by Brian Edward Hill and Simon Kadransky before becoming one of the leads of the critically acclaimed Hellions by Zeb Wells and Steven Segovia. Retroactively, Conan's body first appears in 1989's Uncanny X-Men 256, The Key That Breaks the Lock, by Chris Claremont and Jim Lee, in which Betsy Braddock is transformed by Matsuo Surayaba, leader of the Hand, into a brainwashed Asian assassin he dubs Lady Mandarin. Claremont's intention was that Betsy's appearance had changed due to a combination of plastic surgery and the hand's demonic sorcery, which is why Wolverine still recognizes her face. His plan was for the transformation to be temporary, but he was pushed out of the franchise not long afterward, and Betsy would remain in this Asian form for nearly 30 years of publication. Revanche debuts in 1993's X-Men 17 by Fabian Nicieza and Andy Kubert, in which she's presented as a mysterious assassin in the service of the crime lord Nyirin Henecha, a fierce rival of Matsuo and the Hand. She seeks revenge on the X-Men, and on Psylocke, whom she calls her other self. We see that beneath her leather mask, she boasts Betsy Braddock's distinctive lavender hair. In these early appearances, Nyirin addresses her directly as Kanon, and it is implied that she's aware of her true identity. In X-Men 20, wearing a version of Betsy's old costume from the Outback era, Revanche interrupts a spat between Psylocke and Jean Grey in the danger room at Xavier's, attacking Psylocke before lowering her hood and removing her mask to reveal her face, Betsy Braddock's. Revanche claims to be the true Betsy, and refers to Psylocke as Kanon, declaring her an imposter, and claiming Lord Nyirin has held her captive since she emerged from the Siege Perilous. Xavier's telepathy and Wolverine's superhuman sense of smell are both unable to distinguish between Psylocke and Revanche, who both ping as being like and unlike Betsy Braddock. The blue team of X-Men travels with Revanche to Nyirin's estate in Japan, where they discover a portrait of his lover and chief assassin Kanon that exactly resembles Psylocke's new Asian appearance, apparently validating Revanche's claims. Alongside it, they find Nyirin's diary, which describes Kanon finding an amnesiac and panicked Betsy fresh out of the siege on a dock in Osaka. As an empathic mutant herself, Kanon's own psychic mind interfaced with Betsy's, and the two women were intermingled. Confused, the Asian woman ran off into the night, where she was captured by the hand and turned into Lady Mandarin. Nyirin recovered the white woman. In the present, when Nyirin arrives in person, he explains that neither Psylocke nor Revanche is actually Betsy or Kanon. They're each a psychic collage of both women's personalities and experiences. Years earlier, in the real world, Fabian Nicieza, without realizing it, had accidentally skipped Uncanny X-Men 255, in which Matsuo finds white Betsy Braddock with no memories after she passed through the Siege Perilous, and conspires to turn her into an Asian assassin with the hands, science, and magic. Not knowing Betsy's emergence from the siege had previously been detailed in a comic, Nicieza presented this story from Nyirin's diary, which shows an entirely different sequence of events. 
After the issue was published, fans wrote into the letters column to explain his mistake, and he set out to fix the continuity error, and sadly, to get rid of Revanche as quickly as possible. Back in Westchester, Revanche and Psylocke begin bonding as sparring partners, with each still convinced they are the true Betsy Braddock. Revanche becomes a full member of the X-Men, supporting her comrades on the blue team, including Psylocke, in the crossovers Fatal Attractions and Blood Ties. In the 1993 X-Men Annual, during a conflict with the mysterious threat called the Empyrean, Revanche argues for the agency of terminal legacy virus patients, and tearfully reveals, when pressed as to why she cares so much, that she herself is infected with the fatal disease. Charles Xavier, Hank McCoy, and Moira McTaggart have been working on treatments for Legacy, but they haven't made much headway. When Charles is unable to halt the spread of her illness, Revanche declares that she will die with the wind at her back rather than as a laboratory experiment. This leads into the 1994 two-parter Soul Possessions in X-Men 31 and 32, in which Revanche's telepathic powers, amplified by her rapidly progressing Legacy infection, finally cut through the confusion and reveal the truth. She is Kanon, trapped in Betsy's original body. Disgusted with Matsuo and refusing to be anyone's tool any longer, Revanche tears the bionic mojo world eyes out of Betsy's head and leaves them for Psylocke, along with a note for Charles Xavier explaining that she's departed America with an understanding of her true nature and apologizing for her duplicity. In this story, it seems very clear that Kanon was not in on that deception and genuinely believed herself to be Betsy Braddock in the time she acted as Revanche, which contradicts her first appearance. As a no prize, we might speculate that being in proximity to Psylocke put her in a state of new psychic confusion, but it doesn't quite make sense. Anyway, using her telepathy to see, Revanche returns to Japan to confront Matsuo. She castigates him for restoring her body but not her mind, and being content to abuse an amnesiac Betsy Braddock instead of valuing the love he and Kanon had ostensibly shared. In flashbacks, we see that Kanan and Matsuo had a final duel when Yirin's interests came into conflict with the hands, and that the cliff beneath her collapsed, sending her falling into the sea. Desperate to save his love, Matsuo made a deal with the interdimensional Mojo World sorceress Spiral, who has a long history with Betsy Braddock, and said she'd use Betsy's psychic mind to restore Kanon. Bitter about her own tragic love for Longshot, don't worry about it right now, Spiral instead mixed up the two women's minds and DNA, eager to tear the love of others apart. Ashamed of himself, Matsuo agrees to Kanon's final request, mercy killing Revanche before the legacy virus can kill her. In America, Psylocke feels Revanche die as a psychic shockwave. She travels to Japan herself, still unsure of who she truly is, and Matsuo gives her Kanon's final gift, a telepathic imprint that removes every trace of Kanon's memories and soul from the body Betsy now inhabits. In this issue, Matsuo claims that Kanon was in on Niren's plan at first, but that Niren had deceived her with his false diary to believe she was the real Betsy Braddock. He sent her to the mansion to kill Psylocke and Wolverine, but she grew to respect them and genuinely care for the X-Men before uncovering the truth about herself. Betsy appreciates Kanon's mercy in leaving psychic clarity behind for her and vows to honor Kanon's legacy. Fifteen years later, in 2009's Uncanny X-Men 508 by Matt Fraction and Greg Land, the Red Queen and her sisterhood of mutants, including Spiral, exhume Revanche's corpse from a tomb in Japan. After capturing Betsy, who had been lost between dimensions, the sisterhood casts a spell to place Betsy's mind back in her original body, but also brainwash her into loyally serving them. Betsy battles the X-Men, but is grievously injured by her friend Dazzler, which shakes off the brainwashing enough for her to use a psychic knife on her own mind. This pulls her into a telepathic mindscape, where she battles an evil spirit that appears as a dark, shadowy Psylocke. Some fans believe this spirit is meant to be Kanon, but I don't think it acts or speaks like her, and I choose to chalk it up to a quirk of Spiral's magic. In any case, Betsy defeats the evil Psylocke and re-emerges from the astral plane with her mind restored, but once again, in Kanon's body. I was so mad. This leads into the 2010 Psylocke solo miniseries by Christopher Yost and Harvey Tolabao, in which Betsy travels to Japan to rebury Revanche. She's intercepted by ninjas of the hand, who destroy Revanche's body, infuriating her. 
It turns out this was all planned by Matsuo, who's been tortured and mutilated by Wolverine for years after he murdered Wolverine's lover, Mariko Yoshida. Matsuo is trying to goad Betsy into killing him, and she eventually agrees to mercy kill him as he once did for revenge, appearing to him in a telepathic vision as Kanon to welcome him to the afterlife. Eight years later, in the miniseries Hunt for Wolverine, Mystery and Madripoor, by Jim Zub, Leonard Kirk, and Tony Silas, Betsy's apparently killed by the psychic vampire Sapphire Styx. Actually dragged into an astral soul prison within Styx's body, Betsy manages to seize Styx's power and destroy her, in the process reconstituting a new version of her original white body, molecule by molecule, declaring that this is her true self. At the end of the miniseries, we see that Kanan has also been resurrected in this process, in her own body, and is seeking answers. In Matthew Rosenberg's run on Uncanny X-Men, Conan resurfaces after Betsy and most of the X-Men have apparently been killed by the would-be messiah Nate Grey. Calling herself Nobody and wearing a hooded variant of the Asian Psylocke costume, Conan makes a dramatic entrance by decapitating Joseph, the clone of Magneto, who has gone crazy and become a threat to all mutants. She then teams up with Wolverine in a failed effort to avenge the murder of Rain Sinclair, before disappearing following a battle with Emma Frost's new iteration of the Hellfire Club. In the 2019 soft reboot, House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman, Conan is one of countless mutants to become a citizen of the new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. Taking the codename Psylocke, which Betsy has now abandoned, she's the protagonist of a new volume of Fallen Angels by Brian Edward Hill and Simon Kudransky, in which an entirely new backstory is invented for the character. Raised from birth as a killer by the Hand, as a young woman, Conan fell in love with a man and became pregnant. After she gave birth, the Hand murdered Conan's lover and sent away her newborn daughter to teach her that love is weakness. She then served as one of the Hand's top assassins for many years, contradicting the 90s stories in which she was the personal assassin of the Hand's greatest rival. In the present, Conan is discontented in the paradise of Krakoa, believing she does not deserve it. She bonds with Laura Kinney and the teenage time-traveling version of Cable, who are both in a similar state of unrest, to battle a megalomaniacal artificial intelligence called Apoth that is exploiting and possessing children to spread a new drug called Overclock. One of those children is Conan's long-lost daughter, and Apoth, who views himself also as Conan's child for reasons not immediately revealed, murders her in front of Conan out of jealousy. Conan cuts a deal with Mr. Sinister to artificially boost her telepathic powers, which have been less potent than Betsy Braddock's, as she only gained them in the body swap back in the 90s, and was never formally trained in their use. She discovers that years earlier, when she was working for the Hand, she had spared the newborn Apoth intelligence's life because she thought it was a child. Conan destroys Apoth, avenging her daughter, and returns to Mr. Sinister with the prize she promised him, Apoth's accumulated data. She then pivots into the ongoing series Hellions by Zeb Wells and Steven Segovia, in which she's tasked with supervising a group of problem mutants entrusted to the care of Mr. Sinister, Havoc, Greycrow, Empath, Wildchild, and Nanny and the Orphan Maker. She's strangely deferential to Sinister, and the reader quickly learns why. He has managed to isolate the brainwaves and DNA of Kanon's daughter from the Apoth data and teases Kanon with the possibility of her eventual resurrection. Over time, Conan comes to care for her charges in the Hellions, especially Greycrow, for whom she slowly develops reciprocated romantic feelings. After betraying the Hellions for Sinister on multiple occasions, feeling guiltier and guiltier each time, Conan reaches an understanding with Betsy Braddock in the pages of Excalibur. After the two women make peace, and Conan is named a great captain of Krakoa to replace the no longer capable Gorgon, the Hellions are manipulated into destroying Sinister's lab on Emma Frost's orders. As the lab contains the only copy of Conan's daughter's brainwaves and DNA, she's now well and truly dead, and Conan is devastated. Intending to leave Krakoa, Conan decides to stay when she realizes Orphan Maker is in trouble. She leads the Hellions on one last mission, but is unable to prevent the emotionally stunted young man from killing humans, which damns him to the pit beneath Krakoa. As Hellions draws to a close, Conan and Greycrow affirm their romantic relationship. She's now set to appear as a regular cast member in Steve Orlando and Eleonora Carlini's new volume of Marauders, joining Captain Kate Pride's search and rescue team to prevent others from suffering as she has. 
With the mantle of Psylocke now firmly her own, after years as its dead and forgotten face, Conan enters the Destiny of X era as one of the X-Men franchise's most promising new stars. X-Men, X-Men. And we're back, Caroline. How are you doing? Great. I know you were nervous. Are you feeling less nervous? Lots of people get very nervous to be on this show. And I'm like, don't worry, it's going to be fine. I swear. I'm feeling pretty good so far. In the beginning, I, I felt that feeling you get when you're doing public speaking. Right. Nobody else. It's just the two of us. It's so just us. Like but you know, people are going to listen. So yeah, yeah, it's like it's I get it. It's high pressure. I feel like every week with new guests, they tell me they were like, that was terrible. I'm like, it's not. It was not. It was great. <laughs> and you'll understand when you hear it, because sometimes the edit makes people go, oh, wow, like I didn't, because I'll do this too. It's like when I'm trying to put a thought together, sometimes I'll pause for like 10 seconds. And I'm like, oh, I found my thought. And the <laughs> magic of editing is that I can cut that 10 second pause and sound like a genius. I'm just glad you're here. I have been really anticipating doing this character and it was so much fun to dig into all of her. So I read every appearance of Conan for this uh, episode because again, there's only like 60 of them. So it's not that arduous a thing to do but it was fun to do it yeah so to take us from the top basically in x-men 17 which is niciesa and cubert this is 1993 the main arc is the soul skinner storyline which is this crazy story in russia with Omega Red and Ilyana and Colossus and all of like the Russians have dark stars around the Winter Guard are doing stuff and nobody who's listening to this needs to worry about this storyline. It's not actually important. Go back to the Ilyana episode with Leah Williams if you want to hear about the Soul Skinner. There's a B-plot running under it in Japan. And it's not immediately clear what the hell's going on, but basically a bunch of... Street thugs are causing trouble or whatever in the Ginza district in Tokyo. And this woman charges right. I will say the one thing that is really rough to read. I mean, there are, you know, it's, it's, this is a comic from 30 years ago, but one thing that is repeatedly difficult to read about these is that whenever they do the editorial note that says translated from Japanese on the dialogue, Bob Harris refers to himself as Bob San. And I'm like, Bob. <laughs> Don't do that. But so <laughs> they're fighting and some guy is like, fight, fight. But what kind of a fight is it where one woman wades through a gang of men? And then we just see this woman kicking the absolute shit out of all these guys. She is wearing an outfit that is fully crazy. Um, it's like a sexy daredevil type <laughs> Look. Yeah, it's in the cover art. So look at that if you're if you're new to this look. It is basically the revanche costume, but when she shows up as revanche, I feel like an editor must have been like, it's a little much. Because <laughs> when she shows up in Westchester, she puts like a pink unitard under it. But right now it's just purple armor that is cut so high that it's a miracle her puss isn't hanging out, if I'm being 100% honest. And it's got these panels on the side that reveal like her rib cage and like side boob. She's also wearing like a bondage mask kind of thing on her head. It's like, because the point is, after she defeats them all, she pulls it off and we see the lavender white Betsy hair like spill down her back. And it's like, huh, interesting. But... Initially, it's like very Catwoman, especially 90s Catwoman, where she did wear purple 
but this it's a crazy it's a crazy look people are like why is Conan wearing the Psylocke swimsuit? I'm like, you should see what she started in because the Psylocke <laughs> swimsuit by comparison is positively modest. This is just a very 1993 bad girl in a comic kind of look. She says, it is done. I am ready. I am ready. The time for revenge has come. I am finally prepared to find the X-Men. And we see when she takes the mask off, we don't see her like whole face, but we see that she's a white lady with blue eyes the eye color is super inconsistent throughout this storyline. Sometimes it's green, sometimes it's purple, which is what it's supposed to be because they're the bionic eyes that Mojo gave Betsy. But sometimes they're just blue. And we see that she has the 80s Psylocke, lighter purple hair that Betsy has now. In the following issue, again, the Soul Skinner is like still happening. We see the Neoyuran estate. Kanon is the name of a bodhisattva, specifically the bodhisattva Guanyin, Kanon is the Japanese version of her name. The larger title of the goddess is Nyoyirin Kanon. So by Fabian's own admission, he saw the name in a book, thought it looked cool, and just used it. So Kanon's master, who commands her as an assassin, is Lord Nyoyirin. And we see his home in the suburbs of Tokyo in Kanagawa. Kanan has just killed a whole bunch of other people. They're like these red ninja-looking guys. Nyoyurin says, A very unnecessary display, Kanon. So many lives wasted and all for the sake of proving your point. And she says, How else was I to show you I am prepared to regain my rightful place as your elite assassin, my lord, than by eliminating your honor guard? Very well, Kanon. Fight against the spirit of your namesake, as you always have. Show no mercy to any and all, because Kanon is the goddess of mercy. He then says, but you know the one act you must perform in order to truly regain your former place, do you not? And she says, indeed, Lord Nyerin, I must eliminate my other self. The X-Man called Psylocke must die. So that sets the tone pretty quickly. Um, and here, this is the thing. This story clearly just changed a lot behind the scenes in between, because in this scene, he calls her Kanon, mm-hmm. and she's in on whatever evil scheme he's up to. But that will change dramatically by the time she shows up in Westchester, two issues later. So what's that about? Unclear. Don't worry about it. The thing is, and this is why Fabian was so surprised that I liked the story because he was just like that's like one of the worst stories I ever did doesn't make a (laughs) lick of sense like it's like it got constantly changed because we realized I had made some mistakes like it's just a fucking mess but I always thought she was faking it at first like not knowing right because it seems like she's lying to them at first Mm -hmm. and claiming to be Betsy when she knows she isn't but then that will get changed over time so issue 20 which is when she shows up at the end This is the issue where Scott is working on stuff in the garage and gets some motor (laughs) oil on his face. (laughs) Betsy Psylocke, we should say. Psylocke licks the motor oil off his cheek and then kisses him. Uh, And it's very peculiar. (laughs) It's very like, (laughs) this is a pretty famously weird scene. Uh, It's like, okay, She's sexy, we get that, but like motor oil licking is just like not, I mean, I remember at the time as a kid, I was just like, wow, like this is very like adult, but now I just think about like how bad that must taste. (laughs) (laughs) 
Jean immediately like senses through their psychic rapport that something is wrong. But because Psylocke is herself a telepath, she can't like quite figure out exactly what's happening. Uh, we cut to the danger room where Psylocke is fighting a whole bunch of ninjas, like hologram ninjas. And it says, since she was a child, Betsy Braddock has wanted to run like the hounds on the chase, fly like a hawk on the hunt, fight like a force of nature. All her life, she has wanted the perfect synchronous union of body and mind. And now that she has it, Betsy Braddock revels in it, exalts in it, lives and breathes in it, and nothing and no one will take it away again. And Jean walks in and she says, we need to talk. <laughs> Silex says, whatever about? And Jean says, about Scott. What is there to discuss, Jean? Are you and Scott having an affair? Oh, my. No, an affair. No, Jean, not an affair. I want him to run his fingers through my hair. I want to feel his back tense beneath my fingertips. I want to see him smile for a change. But no, Scott and I are not having an affair. Then, have you telepathically manipulated his mind? Don't turn your back on me, Betsy. Answer me. Why don't you just see for yourself? And she slams her psychic knife right into Jean's head. And Jean goes, Gah! <laughs> <laughs> Betsy Braddock calls it a psychic blade. It is the physical totality of her telepathic powers. Caught unprepared, it cuts through Jean Grey's defenses, surging in a convulsing spasm through her spinal column. And as consciousness fades, Jean sees the truth. She understands Betsy's motives and actions, but the knowledge dissipates as darkness envelops her. Now you know, Jean, you will not remember, but you did know. Suddenly, and this is so cool... <laughs> Psylocke appears, but it's 80s Psylocke in her outback armor in the big hooded cloak. The color scheme is a little different. Uh, it's all the sort of one purple color with a blue cloak. And she says, as do I. And Betsy says, oh, Jean, what a marvelous endgame. Programming a hologram sequence of my earlier self, forcing me to question what I am now in full view of what I once was. I wouldn't have thought you capable of such a duplicitous maneuver. And Ravanche says, and you would have thought right, Canon, considering she is not responsible for my presence here. You are. And she creates a huge psychic sword, which is way more intimidating than Betsy's little psychic knife. And they start to fight. And Betsy's like, what did you call me? Who are you? I am the one thing you have feared most since first awakening to see the world through new eyes. I am the truth. And they fight and fight and fight. The X-Men burst in. What the hell's going on in here, basically? And Revanche says, I mean no harm to any of you. Then why would you have attacked us, Storm says? And why are you wearing Elizabeth's old Psylocke armor? Aurora, I find your questions to be slightly redundant. One, I did not attack any of you. Only Kanon. Two, I only wear the armor of Betsy Braddock. And she removes her mask. And Charles says, no. And then this is the really famous splash page of her pulling her hood down. She goes, because I am Betsy Braddock. This woman is and always has been an imposter. Next issue, Psylocke, Revanche, Betsy Braddock, and Canon. Who's been sleeping in my head? Which is <laughs> great. And this, is, this was the page that blew my mind when I was a kid. Because we had totally taken it for granted. Like, this is Betsy. Wolverine said it was Betsy. It's Betsy. And then Betsy shows up and it's like, oh, no, I'm Betsy. This is someone else. As a kid who didn't know where it was going to go, it was wild. It was a wild twist. It's like a daytime soap opera. Very much so. Like very soapy. Very dynasty. Yes. 
the next issue starts and Logan has her right up against, like has like Psylocke right up against the wall. And he's like, so Bets, just who the hell are you then? I don't need to answer that question, Logan. We've shared each other's deepest, darkest thoughts and deeds. You know who I am. Shall we do, shall we? But you got to understand why we'd be a little confused, huh? You've been accused, Jean says, of being an agent for a Japanese underworld crime lord named Nia Eren and a traitor to the X-Men. Are you denying it, Psylocke? I simply do not acknowledge the merit of the accusations, Jean. If anyone should be questioned right now, it is her. And Revanche, who now has a really festive perm, like it is curled within an inch of its life, which actually the mall issue in the 80s where Betsy gets the perm, it's like that, it's that texture. She goes... I am Betsy Braddock in soul and most obviously in flesh. The X-Men believe me and appear to have sufficient reason to doubt you. Professor Xavier is like, okay, I can't see a difference between them. I'd have to dig really deep into their minds to see who's telling the truth. And because they're both powerful telepaths, it's kind of dangerous and I would prefer not to do that. And Revanche curtsies before him, very like classic Betsy and goes... Though we've never met until today, Professor, I willingly submit myself to your probe. <laughs> and Silox says, oh, masterfully played. Well, Charles, I will not allow you to violate me, but not because her accusations have any validity to them. I have suffered too many indignities at the hands of others. First Slaymaster, then Mojo, and after emerging from the siege perilous, I was shredded body and soul by Matsuro Suriyaba. I won't allow anyone to tear through the layers of my mind, my memories, my very self, ever again. Jean says... Is that why you've gotten so aggressive with your powers? Never a victim, always a victor, Jean. That's also why I chose to strike at you when you accused me of having an affair with Cyclops. You've all accepted that I am not the woman I once was. And then Revanche says, nor are you the woman you claim to be now. And they start fighting again, fighting, fighting, fighting. Swords and knives are clashing. Charles is like, stop it, stop it, stop it. Wolverine then verifies to Charles privately. He's like, their sense are the same and different from Betsy Braddock's before she went through the Siege Perilous. Like, neither of them smells right to him. He's able to tell, like, that's Betsy, but it's a little off. And now both of them, that's Betsy, but it's a little off. Right, and even there's no surface differences, like when Cerebro was scanning for the security either. Right, like their size scans don't display a difference between their minds either, which is, like, mm -hmm. very disconcerting. To Charles, and Charles says, the Betsy Braddock the X-Men worked with before my return was no ninja disciple, was she? And you didn't teach her such techniques? Where could she have come by this knowledge then? I'm thinking there's only one way we're going to find out the truth. Indeed. We have to go back to the source. We have to find this Jigoku crime lord, Neo Iren. In order to do that, we have to journey to Japan. Then we cut to Japan, where Shinobi Shaw, in his peak era of importance right now honestly like shinobi shaw's brief moment the upstarts are really in their bag in this early 90s moment and then never ever matter again he is partying with his like bisexual boy and girl toys in tokyo in his penthouse and lord nirin comes to see him this is after shinobi has apparently killed sebastian and seized control of the hellfire club which was his first big sort of opening salvo. This is another complicated Asian character, right? And particularly because he mm -hmm. is Asian American. He's now trying to seize a position of power in the Japanese underworld and in the Asian underworld generally. And all of the Asian local criminals are like, 
no, no, no. Like, we don't like this guy who is very American in his way of doing things. He's slurring his words through this whole scene because he's drunk, which is funny. Nirian is like, the Jigoku Underworld heads are meeting tomorrow. Shinobi says, you need to regain control of your prime assassin, Kanon, and I want the X-Men killed. Any or all, the more, the merrier. And Nirian says that he will use Kanon's troubles to accomplish Shinobi's goals. Shinobi, therefore, agrees to back Nirian's plan to re-elevate Clan Yoshida because Nirian is working with the Silver Samurai. Mariko was recently killed by Matsuo. So the clan is without a leader. Nirian and the Silver Samurai want to make Clan Yoshida powerful again because Nirian is a rival of the Hand. He doesn't like Matsuo. He doesn't like the Hand, generally. When we get to Fallen Angels, that's actually like a big, big, big problem I have with Fallen Angels is that it makes right. um, a Hand assassin, which is... I have thoughts on that one. <laughs> completely wrong. Yeah. But <laughs> we'll get there. That's when we get to issue 21. This is the one that you had Fabian sign. We get very into the weeds. It's Gambit and Beast and Psylocke and Revanche in Japan. They go to Neoyurin's palace. It's like a sort of a country estate. They're just bickering, bickering, bickering. Revanche will only refer to Psylocke as Kanon. And Psylocke keeps pointing out, she's like, you certainly know your way around. Everywhere we go, you know exactly what we're walking into. And she's like, because I was a prisoner here for months, Kanon, while you were impersonating me. And it just goes on and on. It's a lot of fun. You do get to see them using their powers together. It's a lot of like Niren's elite guard attacks. And uh, Gambit says, as he watches the two women back to back fighting, there's a cool moment where they both instinctively go into the same martial arts pose in the same panel. And Gambit says, See the way they both fight, Henri? To Beast. Two mere images of each other. This show is getting really interesting now, though. Huh. And Psylocke goes, I ask you, how could Revanche know all of this information without being the traitor she claims me to be? I have told you, I spent months here, captive, degraded in body and soul. They love a body and soul, which is a Claremontism that Nicieza has them use a bunch of times. Your audacity continues to amaze me, Kanon. You will face the truth and my freedom with dignity or die like the treasonous coward you are. And Gabbard says, no, no, mignons. If we'll just see what's behind door number one. And he opens the door that Ravon just pointed them to. And there is a huge painting on the wall of Psylocke with some katana swords, like in a robe. And it's very much Asian Psylocke. Hank can read Japanese. And he goes, the piece translated from the Japanese is called Kanon in Repose. Quite a masterful piece of art. The technique is quite impressive. So like everybody's like, well, I gotta say like Asian Psylocke, this is looking pretty bad for you. Like this is not, <laughs> this is not, mm, I don't know. I don't know about all of that. Gambit tries to get her to explain to him. And she's like, of all the X-Men, you are the last one I should be explaining anything to. Because Gambit is like this mysterious thief who just showed up in their lives one day. And she's like, you don't tell us anything about yourself. Why should I be accountable at all? But the fact that she's so defensive makes her look really guilty. Like this woman who is the Betsy that they all, Gambit didn't meet her, but like that they all know has a pretty plausible story as to what like her argument is 
Niren kidnapped me and had me replaced with his lover, assassin, and she lied to you and said she was me, and you all believed her, and I'm really upset. Revanche, which, by the way, they never, like, the characters just all start calling her that between issues. It's never said, like, on the page, it's never really gotten into. Revanche is French for revenge, but refers specifically to revenge that is looking to reclaim something that was taken from you to regain your status or territory. A lot of people have said, like, why can't Conan use the codename Revanche? And there's a lot of branding reasons why it makes more sense to call her Psylocke. But one of those things is that Revanchism is a political movement that is pretty hard right. Putin's philosophy about Crimea and Ukraine is called Russian Revanchism, for example. So I think that there's like, it's like, mm, I don't know if we want to, I don't know if we want to dig into that because it's it's not just revenge there's like a specific context it's like i'm taking back what's mine so then they're attacked by the silver samurai that leads into issue 22 this is the one that opens with a really cool splash page well it's a splash panel of the two betsy's sort of together and this is the image of revanche that i feel like you usually see if you google around the internet it's her in the original crazy outfit that we talked about from issue 17 but with the pink unitard under it and now she has like all these sort of 90s pouches and belts and things that are silver like strapped around her arms and legs it looks really cool I, I love this costume I think it's gorgeous it's very 90s like if they brought it back <laughs> at all I would I think we would need to get rid of some of the accoutrements that are just like strapped at random all over her but the costume itself is really cool they fight the silver samurai and this is where we get like a preview of what's so satisfying now about that Excalibur arc is watching them fight together. And it's just super cool. Like they are sort of in sync. They feel like mirror images of each other, like sort of two halves of a whole. They almost start finishing each other's sentences, which is very cool. There's a great moment where Revanche says, let's finish this. And Psylocke says, a double parry of our psychic blades should be sufficient enough to scramble Samurai's synaptic control. And Revanche says, and with his strings cut, the marionette falls. The show finishes. The puppeteer's charade, an unsuccessful one. And they're both attacking with their psychic weapons. It's like, ladies, whatever's going on here, it seems like neither of you is lying, right? Like, that's the, that's the fun of this arc. And I think that makes more sense and is more interesting than the initial presentation of Revanche as, like, in on it and evil. I think it's more interesting if they both really do think they're Betsy because that way it's easy to like both characters and to sort of like want to know the truth, but also not want either of them to be bad, right? Right. Then they find Niren's diary, which is exciting to them. And <laughs> this is funny too. Like they're always going very tit for tat with like, your story doesn't make any sense because neither <laughs> of their stories make sense. Like, Psylocke can't read Japanese and Revanche is like, huh, okay, interesting. That's weird. And Psylocke's like, no weirder than you being a white lady who can read Japanese. Like what? Like <laughs> this is not. <laughs> Hank actually says, I think ladies, we're all in agreement. That this is a complicated enough situation as it is without the two of you playing tit for tat. And Revanche says, I apologize, Hank. The stress is getting to us all. Well, let's kiss and make up at the Black Belt, eh? A good thief never hangs around to count his purse. Psylocke says, you're right, Gambit. The sooner we leave, the better. And Revanche says, 
no, and pops her psychic katana, shoves it through Betsy's chest. <laughs> says, the answers lie here, both in this mansion, written on this scroll, and in your mind. We do not leave until this situation has been settled. And Gambit says, this is why, actually rereading this, I was like, this is why I really do like that Betsy and Gambit are together again in the current stuff, because they have a funny banter. He says, <laughs> he goes, now, Betsy, no reason to out Betsy, is there? Oh, I'm so confused. <laughs> it's just really good. This is where the mistake happens, which is that we cut to Psylocke's memories and we see a scene that simply does not happen in the original story because Fabian missed that the original story had any explanation of what happened. Here we see White Betsy washed up on the shore in Osaka, Kanon is on a mission for Nyirin. Here and in the painting, Kanon does have purple hair, by the way, which just underlines the confusion. Later, we will see flashbacks to Kanon where she has the black hair that she has now. So I think in retrospect, we should assume that Spiral dyed her hair, I like to, to make her like, you know, I don't know. But um, at the time in the flashbacks, Kanon's purple hair looks like it's natural or something that she had before they ever met. But so what happens is Conan walks up. You were there to end a life, Revanche says. A shipping clerk who had betrayed Niren's trust, and you did something very alien to you. You reached out to save a life instead. My life, Conan. Betsy Braddock had just emerged with the siege perilous. Her mind fractured, her body battered raw, and I sensed your presence, so whole, so alive. Which came first, you reaching out to her or Betsy reaching out to you? Either way, one touch, physical and spiritual contact was all it took. In Betsy's chaotic state, your minds fused together. You both screamed. She reaches out and touches white Betsy, and suddenly their minds fuse. It's not clear which of them did it, but something about their psychic powers connects them instinctively. And then it says that Matsuo found her and used the Mandarin and the hand to try to assemble their minds into one piece. Niren in this diary is like, my canon cannot possibly be working for the hand, which again makes the fallen angels thing weird. <laughs> the only way to justify it is if you think the fallen angels backstory, she escaped the hand, then it would make sense that he's like, she would never go back to them. But that's just not what it mm -hmm. says in this story. So it's like, okay, whatever. Yeah. But anyway, Psylocke is super upset about all of this. Revanche says, Niren found me, took me in, and little by little helped Betsy Braddock regain her memory. Also that he could regain the services of Kanon, a woman who was not only his prime assassin, but his lover as well. And Silas goes, no! And Hank's like, wow, this is still really confusing. <laughs> <laughs> and Gambit says, how come British Betsy is reading Japanese handwriting? And how she learned to fight like a ninja? The only question we need to address, Gambit, Revanche says, is why she chose to walk among you, impersonating me. And the answer is quite evident. The woman you know as Psylocke is still in the employ of the Hand. And as soon as she is ordered, she will betray the X-Men. So they start fighting again. <laughs> <laughs> they, they fight a lot. But it's, it's because here's the thing. It's cool. At this point, they called it a psychic katana in her first appearance. But Revanche's sword, and this is kind of neat, looking at it now, the way that Betsy's been doing a long sword, is like a fencing rapier. So it's like a European sword, which is like a cool detail. They start dueling again, and 
Matsuo is talking to the games master and Shinobi. We hear his narration over the fight, and he says, When all is said and done, the true nature of the lump of clay I have sculpted into a twisted, fragile, killing flower will blossom and surprise and delight you all, most especially Kanon and Betsy Braddock. We cut, and Hank says, Oi vey, here we go, because they're doing it again. <laughs> Revanche says, Hank, I want my honor back. After Hank is like, you're making this worse, Betsy, to Revanche. I want my name back. I want my life back. And Psylocke says, mine is not yours to take. I am not who you say I am, and you are not who you claim. And then Niairin walks in. They both shout, Niairin, at the same time, because they both recognize him, which, again, like, Psylocke shouldn't. So we can tell something's afoot. He says, you are both who you claim to be. You are both Kanon and both Elizabeth Braddock. The essential question is, can either of you truly become the whole again and more? Do you desire to? So then we cut to issue 24. But first, what did you think of this story? What was your reaction to this when you first read it? Confusion. <laughs> you know, <laughs> when they read Muren's um, diary... At first, it's like you take it at face value. Right. You know, and then come to find out that it's a complete lie. And then you're like, whoa, what, what? Because it has to be once they realize that, like, we saw what happened and that's not what happened. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and he could have just gone with it. Like, a lot of writers would have just been like, nope, my version's what happened. Don't worry about it. (laughs) But Fabian was, I think, embarrassed that he had made a mistake. So there's a later bit. It's like a year later after this in the final revenge storyline. She's just like, Neil Uren's false diary. I'm like, oh, it was false? Okay, sure. <laughs> what was your feeling on like, did you think revenge was telling the truth? Was this where you first started to understand Psylocke's backstory? Was it this story? Yeah, you know, it was coming together a little bit at a time. I do believe that both of them believed that they were telling the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, something just didn't seem like it was black and white. You know, there had to have been, it just didn't make enough sense to be one or the other, you know? Yeah. So. In issue 24, we see them back at the mansion and they're dueling with each other, but like in a friendly way now. Revanche is fully like fencing with a literal like epee. I guess Silek has one too, but basically they're completely evenly matched. Silek says, Well played. I believe we've proven that the two of us are far too evenly matched to make this exercise of much interest. And Revanche says, Agreed. We cannot telepathically read each other's mind, yet we move and function as though mirror images of the other. Adepts in martial disciplines neither of us claim to have formally learned. And Psylocke says, Which then is Betsy Braddock, with the mutant ability to cleave minds? And Revanche says, And which is Kanon, with the fighting skill to rend bodies? You two been back from Japan for over a week. Wolverine. Ain't it about time the two of you stop pretending you're anything other than what you are? Two bodies and four minds? And believe me, if anyone knows about trying to squeeze ten liters of brain juice into an eight-liter jug, it's me. (laughs) Of course, I've been trying to square my problems out since before either of you were born. What are the two of you going to do about it? Hash it out again and again? Or get on with your lives? This is the part where it becomes cool, because for the next year... Revanche is just on the team. Like, she just joins the blue team, and everybody basically decides, one of you is Betsy, or both of you are. We're not really sure, and we're very confused, but you can both hang out. And it almost feels like they're focused group testing, like, both characters to see, like, which one will (laughs) stick. Fabian, in his episode, was like, everybody liked Asian Betsy better, so that was the one that we decided to keep. 
There's a great bit where they're in uh, Betsy's room at the mansion, Psylocke's room, and it has like Japanese wall scrolls and like all of this Asian art in it. And Revanche says, interesting decorations for a woman born and bred in England. And Psylocke says, it felt right at the time. Revanche says, I'm sure it did. (laughs) And Psylocke says, listen, you may have successfully wormed your way into this mansion, my home, and into my life, and maybe they believe you really are Betsy Braddock. And why shouldn't they? Perhaps they believe this to be true because it is. Or maybe Connor and Betsy's body would know how to lie and cheat and to steal, to assassinate souls as well as bodies far better than Betsy Braddock would. Perhaps that could be true as well. Who's to know for sure? That's when a pivot happens. This feels editorial. It feels like someone said, okay, we got to get rid of one of them. Like this plot has to resolve somehow. Because then you get the 1993 annual. And there's a story by Fabian. This is an interesting one. It involves this guy called the Empyrean, who is a mutant who drains energy from other mutants. The legacy virus is now raging. And when you are infected with legacy, your power starts to go out of control. So the X-Men and the Brotherhood team up to investigate this guy because he apparently is like holding mutants hostage. It turns out that actually what he's doing is he's made like Pyro calls it a lipocolony for people like Pyro who have the legacy virus. He is draining the legacy boosted powers out of them. It takes their pain away, but it also like feeds him. So it's an interesting story because you know, they're like, Pyro, he's using you. And Pyro's like, yeah, but I'm using him. Like, I'm I'm in a lot of (laughs) fucking pain over here. Kind of an odd story, but it opens first with Revanche in the danger room with Gambit and Jubilee. Gambit says, been wondering, why did you call yourself Revanche? And she says, I've had enough wrongs done to me in my life that the name simply seemed appropriate. She zaps Jubilee with her psychic sword. Jubilee's like, oh, Mondo, Excedrin, headache tonight. Rogue ends up beating her by, like, knocking into her from behind. And then we cut to the other room where Jean and Scott are talking to Betsy. And Jean says, it is Betsy's decision, Scott. I just think the professor should be involved. Scott, please, no, we shouldn't bother Charles about this. And after my romantic advances toward you almost cost you and Jean your relationship, I need to find out if it was me, Elizabeth Braddock, who controlled my actions or the portions of my memory derived from the hand assassin Canon. So I would rather just keep this between us if you don't mind, which now I'm, hmm. Lady Mandarin was working for the hand, but Canon is not a hand assassin. Like, mm-hmm. this is maybe where the confusion happened. If I'm Brian Edward Hill reading these stories, maybe he saw the phrase hand assassin over and over and just was like, she works for the hand because that is not like the whole point was that the hand brainwashed her to work for them instead of for near and to work with the Mandarin and become Lady Mandarin. But anyway. Yeah. And they're so well known as being like the big, big baddies in Japan. Yeah. This is then a really cool sequence where like Betsy allows Jean into her head. So like she lets all her psychic defenses down and it cuts to a memory of Betsy's childhood where she and Brian are like playing hide and seek. A brisk wind cuts through the tall grass at Malden. Brian runs ahead of you, teasing you. Your brother is faster, stronger. You mutter a wholly unladylike curse under your breath. Proper British children shouldn't think such thoughts. But Betsy Braddock was never much one for the trappings of English society. And now, in the playgrounds of her mind, 
Betsy has an option she never had as a child. And we see child Betsy swing a katana through Brian and spear him with a sword. The ability, strength, and savagery to act out her childish frustrations. Inside her mind, Brian Braddock doesn't even have a chance to scream. But Jean Grey does. And most surprisingly of all, so does Betsy. And so Betsy is horrified. Jean says, Elizabeth, do not call me that anymore, Jean, because now we both know that is not who I am. What is it? What did you see? They're one and the same, joined together to the root, the very core of their being. Conan and Betsy Braddock are completely linked in body and soul. This is when I said, like, they have that moment where they send Revanche and Psylocke and Gambit around the back to, like, (laughs) knock down the doors while they, like, I'm going to talk to them. I'm Cyclops. And they send the ninjas and the thief around the back. This is where the big reveal happens. Cyclops is like, we need to take all of these people away. Like, what's happening here is wrong. I don't care if it's helping them. And Revanche says, we have no right to be judging these people, their motives or the decisions. We must leave and consider this a situation beyond our ability to control or dominate. I'm not sure we can do that, Revanche. Why do you feel so strongly about this? Two reasons, Cyclops. One, because I have had my life ripped apart. My sense of self-determination, even my sense of self, denied me by this situation with Conan. I know how helpless Pyro and anyone else must feel for that reason alone. But there is another more pressing matter which qualifies me to declare my opinion here. For quite obviously, X-Men, I have contracted the legacy virus as well. And she rips down her costume to reveal the sores. It's sort of like a Kaposi sarcoma all over her chest. And that's what the legacy virus looks like. It's very much something that looks like advanced AIDS infection. Psylocke says, my God. And Revanche says, it does rather appeal to you, doesn't it, Kanan? And there's a moment's pause, and then Psylocke embraces her, and they hug in silence, and it's really cool. It's actually like a really cool moment. The Empyrean guy says, Your revanche is right, Cyclops. The choice of how one dies must be made whenever possible solely by oneself, which is foreshadowing of what will eventually happen with revanche. Henry Peter Gyrick then shows up and is like, What's going on here, Cyclops? Like, ah, Cyclops looks at Revanche, who has like a tear coming down her face, and he's just like, uh, nothing's the matter here, Mr. Gyrick, and it's like, fuck off, basically. The Empyrean invites her to stay with him, and she says, an offer which is appreciated, Empyrean, but earlier I spoke of an individual's right to choose how to die, and I choose to face this deadly virus, fighting all the way, not stagnating and waiting for death's door to open. She's really just determined to fight it. And Fabian has talked about how in his book Nomad at the time, he was trying to do an explicit HIV storyline with the Nomad character, and he wasn't allowed to by corporate. I think that here, you know, the legacy virus storyline is messy, but Pyro and Revanche are two characters who represent that struggle, that fight against a disease that has no adequate treatment at this point. And I think it's kind of cool Psylocke says to her, now what? And this is the part that I think is really significant. Revanche turns to her and says, I do what everyone else does, Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. I persevere. And I try to make whatever amount of life I have left something to remember. And if I am successful, something that no one will ever forget. And then in issue 27, there's another scene where they duel each other like they do. Psylocke surprises her jumping out of a tree and Revanche slaps her in the face because like, <laughs> yeah, don't you ever do that to me again. I could have killed you. Or are you, Revanche? 
Why did you interrupt my exercise? Can't any peace or solace be found in this house without the cloying interference of its residents? And Silex says, I merely wanted to see how you were. Oh, I understand. You wanted to check out my reflexes, see if I could still perform. To see if the fact that I'm dying from this damnable legacy virus has slowed me down? Rest assured, I can still do everything I used to do, Psylocke. I can still hit, still hurt, and if need be, I can still kill. And Psylocke says, Betsy Braddock never did any of those things. Well, maybe she should have, to know how it feels to be so in control over your own body that you can rob someone else of the ability to use theirs. Maybe she should know what that's like before this virus steals her last chance from her. So now they're both referring to each other as Elizabeth. <laughs> like, they now are both, like, we're both Betsy, and we're both not Betsy, and it's crazy. Then in Uncanny 308, this is the Lubdell book with the gold team, but the blue team is in this issue, and they all play football. Revanche is on the football game. Like, she plays with everybody. And I'm like, you know what? If I was dying of a wasting disease, I would probably like not want to do the football. But she's like, she's down. She's game. And uh, she plays well. And then there's a great scene where afterward they have like a huge family dinner. It's like both of the X-Men teams. And then like Hank has Trish there. Uh, Stevie Hunter's there. I think Bobby's parents, his horrible parents are there. And this is a great panel that I really just like because you see them all sitting around the table and Psylocke and Revanche are seated across from each other and are just like staring at each other. <laughs> and we don't know, like I have to think that they're like maybe speaking telepathically or something and we just don't get it. But like, it feels very much like, well, here we are. Like they chose to sit across from each other. That's not like a seating chart that, Charles drew up because that would be awkward. So there's like a bond developing between them that's really interesting. That leads into first issue 28 where Charles is running tests on Revanche and says, you know, this may hurt a little Elizabeth. He's able to give her painkillers basically, but he can't do anything else. And he says, what are your plans, Elizabeth? Plans, Professor? What have I planned? Have you forgotten I'm going to die? You misunderstood me. I merely meant that as the disease progresses, will you stay here at the mansion so we can continue treatment? Study me is more the like, isn't it? Poked and prodded like a laboratory animal? I think not. I am going to die as I have lived, Professor, with the wind at my back and blood on my hands. The woman who calls herself Elizabeth Braddock leaves quickly, giving Charles Xavier no time to remark on her enigmatic statement. <laughs> and then she's gone and comes back for the final revanche arc soul possessions. What do you think of this story? I really love it. Yeah, I thought it was just beautifully written. There's different things in the final one that I really loved. You know, it, it kind of goes back to the whole butterfly thing, how mm -hmm. Matsuo calls Kano little butterfly. Yes, and she doesn't like it. Right. She prefers, you know, she's the hawk. I mean, the whole title is Butterfly and the Hawk. Yes, and that's a callback to there's a bit about like how Betsy wanted to be like a hawk. Mm -hmm. I read it earlier when like we see Psylocke in the danger room. They both want to be a hawk, but they're both butterflies. And this is why, you know, people ask sometimes like, isn't the butterfly Betsy's thing? But it always was associated with both of them really strongly in the 90s, particularly in this story 
this is an interesting, like the framing of this is interesting. It's Spiral, who has just been revealed by Nicias in a retcon to be Ricochet Rita from the long shot mini, like transformed by Mojo into Spiral as a time paradox. We'll get to that in a Spiral episode. Don't worry too much about it. But the point is she herself has been victimized and transformed in the way that she, as we will learn, did to them. Um, she acknowledges, she breaks the fourth wall and refers to Kanan. She's observing Kanan's memories. And she says... It's a flashback several solar cycles ago. I accessed the memory logs of a Terran female named Kanon, an assassin by trade. Then we see her and Matsuo. He calls her little butterfly. She's like, for the final time, stop calling me butterfly. It's insulting. Call me if you must a bird of prey. He says, why? If you can fly like a hawk, why are you so afraid of falling? And she says that she's not afraid, but she knows where she will land. If I fear anything, it is the flying, for I have no idea of how high I may go. And Spiral says, young love, it sickens me. It reminds me a bit too much of everything I once had and lost. Is that why I was so willing to become involved in this pathetic little game? Because I was jealous, angry, resentful? Why else, when the opportunity was presented to me to stitch a love back together that had been shredded by fate, did I choose instead to further tear it to pieces? But enough introspection. Switch now to a feed from that continuity glitch of a mutant telepath. So, like, that's the part that makes me laugh. It's Fabian acknowledging that he fucked the story up, but because Spiral is outside space and time, she's like, I did it. She calls herself Revanche now, the Asian one, you fool, in the body that once belonged to Elizabeth Braddock. We cut then to a splash page where we see Revanche looming over Professor Xavier with a katana, apparently about to kill him. And then suddenly the transmission cuts out, much to Spiral's dismay. The next morning, Charles is with Betsy, Psylocke, and is giving her a note that Revanche left. High enough to avoid the problems I face now, to avoid the legacy virus which is rapidly coursing through this mutant body, killing me. I will fly far enough away so I will no longer be of any concern to you, Charles Xavier, or your gallant X-Men, who have been nothing if not fair to me since my duplicitous arrival into your home. That's it? She doesn't say where she went? No, Psylocke, she psychically masked her entrance into my room and just as surreptitiously left our lives the way she came in, with no explanation of who she really was or what she really wanted out of us. She waits a few minutes after he leaves, uncertain whether she should show anyone the parting gift Revanche left her, since it is a painful reminder of a legacy she thought long gone. And then we see that in her hand, she's holding the bionic purple eyes. And the note in the eyes are actually where you start to see, or at least I started to see that she started having respect towards the X-Men and Charles Xavier and even Betsy. And then it shows that she's kind of accepted her fate now. And accepted that she's not Betsy. Exactly. We flash back again. And in this story, Conan does have black hair, natural, that's not purple. She doesn't like having her picture taken because it makes her uncomfortable. Again, like she's kind of an introverted person she makes Matsuo promise because this is where we find out they were star-crossed lovers specifically. She was New Yuren's assassin. He was the hands top guy. And the two clans were coming into conflict. He suggests that they commit suicide together so that they don't have to fight each other. He says there would be art in that. And she says, but no honor, Mata. Our lives are what they are. If I am called upon to do so, I will kill you, Mata. You must promise me, Matsuo, that you will honor our love, honor me, and do the same for me. She makes him promise, and he says, only because I do love you, little butterfly, I promise. Then we cut to the present where he's talking to Spiral, who 
it turns out just cause problems on purpose. Like in the original, in the key that breaks the lock, Mojo and Spiral are just part of Betsy's dream sequence. This establishes that they were actually there and that they participated in the hands rituals and whatnot. Mojo has recently died in another story. So Spiral is now kind of a free agent who doesn't really know what to do. He says, what did my word, my stupid honor bring me? And Spiral, who's suddenly in his room, says, nothing but pain, young assassin. You, I, I who know something of the pain brought on by lost love. If that were true, you would never have broken your promise to me. You would have helped me regain Conan's love as you said you would. When you contacted me, Matsuo, desperate to save the shattered body and ravaged mind of your lady love, I promised only to repair the damage you had wrought. I kept my part of the bargain. Conan's body walked out of that eugenics chamber. It's not my fault her mind did not. So we start to get a better understanding of exactly what's going on. And Spiral says to him, you only got one shot. She's dying. So if you want her, go to her now. Like, sort this out. Because... Clock's ticking. Then we cut to the X-Mansion, to the danger room, where Warren and Betsy, who at this point are sort of being flirtatious, are in the danger room, and Betsy suddenly finds herself fighting a hologram of Angel before he was Archangel, because Warren at this point is like the blue Archangel, not classic Angel. He says, you wouldn't cut down a little old sparrow like me just to prove you're a hawk, would you? She slices him in half and she's just like, sending a hologram to do a man's job, Warren, getting shy in your old age. He asks her to come to breakfast. We then get another flashback. There's a lot of flashbacks here to like Matsuo and Kanon's relationship. We see what happened in their final duel. He didn't actually kill her. They were fighting and the cliff beneath their feet collapsed in like a rainstorm and she fell like 20 feet or whatever <laughs> like it was it's bad into like the water below Nyirin comes up behind Matsu and says I still live Matsu despite your best intentions was honor worth the price paid no then take her Nyirin had said take her to your masters and tell the demon lords of the hand I shall not cross them again ask them to save her for she is treasure beyond all others and Matsuo knew then that Nyirin too loved Kanon he saw it in the tears in the older man's eyes, and Matsuo wondered then at the power of love that Nyirin could deliver his greatest warrior unto his deadliest enemies. He remembers her broken body. So fragile she looked, so beautiful still, he thought his heart would literally break from grief. She had swallowed so much seawater, and her brain denied oxygen for so short a period of time was still severely damaged. But she had survived. The sciences, both physical and mystic of the hand, had seen to that. But survived as what? A butterfly with its wings clipped will never fly again. How then to find a way to see that butterfly emerge once again, whole and new from its cocoon? He found the way. To save her life, he would do anything, even if it meant dealing with the devil herself, a spinning, swirling, tortured creature who walked in shadow and in madness, who twisted shattered minds and broken bodies as easily as she did her own word. And that's when Revanche jumps up behind him with the blindfold on. She looks so fucking cool. <laughs> she says... I can sense your thoughts, Mata. I feel your pain quite plainly, but do you have the slightest clue how your anguish pales in comparison to mine? Revanche! Kanon! Either or neither, thanks to you. She's speaking Japanese, actually, so it's not the accent. Because your attempt to breathe life into my lost soul is responsible for costing me my mind and body, and now it's going to cost me my very life. Then we cut to Betsy and Warren. Betsy's telling Warren about the bionic eyes, which it turns out she never told the X-Men about, which is kind of a fun characterization beat. 
she was like, when we were resurrected by Roma, don't worry about it, guys. Go back to the Betsy episode if you do. But <laughs> one of the things Roma did was cloak them from all electronics, like cameras and things. So Betsy just assumed that the eyes were turned off. When my second encounter with the siege resulted in this new form, well, quite frankly, I never thought to pry my own eyes out to see if they were real or not. Would you have? Of course not, Bets, but obviously Revanche felt the need to reject the blasted things. Maybe from a figurative standpoint, she wanted to turn a blind eye to what happened to her. You know, die in peace without seeing it. Or maybe her actions have greater meaning. I mean, really, the thought of what she had to do to leave them behind is pretty unsettling. That's putting it mildly. And the thought that I may never find the reasons behind her actions is infuriating me. You understand how frustrating this has been, don't you, Warren? After the transformations you underwent at the hands of Apocalypse, you know the utter horror of awakening and finding that everything that was once true about you, your very face, has changed. It's a violation of the highest order. I understand, Bets, that we both learned the hard way, that we do have friends, family, that we can turn to for support. We cut back to Japan. Revanche is basically torturing Matsuo psychically, and she's frustrated because she's like, no matter how many layers I peel back, you only see me as her. It's Psylocke in, like, the Asian Psylocke costume. Still, you deny me the complete truth of what really happened to me and Braddock. What went wrong with your plan, Mata? Why are you so strongly rejecting my existence? I see now that you sought to use Betsy Braddock when the hand found her washed ashore in their island compound. It was the perfect solution. Use a telepathic amnesiac to restore my mind. Why then didn't you realize that when my body stepped out of the nutrient containment bass the hand had placed it in, she had taken possession of it? I did not know... At first. How long did it take you to find out, Mata? Stop seeing me in your mind's eye the way you wish me to be and see me as I am, as you made me. You've tried to hide from what you did to me for too long. I may be blind now, Mata, but that doesn't mean I cannot see. Tell me the truth. The truth, Kanon. The ugly, ugly truth. Is that what you want, my love? All right, then. Yes. Even though I'd lost your soul, I still had your body whole again. At first, I thought that the Mandarin and our Psy Sensitive had been successful. When I discovered that your minds had been switched, I realized my plans had been betrayed by another. Then I decided that having your body could be enough, and that I would sculpt of that what I could of our love, take Psylocke's fractured memories and try to mold them into a semblance of what you were. And that is how little you thought of our love, Mata, that a body was substitute enough for a soul? Is that why you chose not to say anything when Psylocke and I first confronted you months ago? I thought it was penance I owed you, an eye for an eye, as it were. And that, you know, there's only so much you can forgive. When he was like, well, I kind of, I, I got your body and, you know, close enough, you know. I thought I could trick her into believing she was you and then it would be like you were back. Yeah. And she's like, wow, <laughs> like, that's, wow. You can only, okay, when people are mourning, you kind of think, okay, they do extreme things. They can do weird things. They're like, okay, well, he, maybe he thought he would be happy with just, her body and the rest he could kind of turn a blind eye to but the way he says it it's just so shallow I'm like you're you're an ass you he know? sucks like, this guy sucks yeah he says and now butterfly now that your memory has been restored can we and she looks at him like are you fucking crazy <laughs> do what love again live again and she rips her costume open again like she did in the annual reveals that the legacy virus is 
all over her chest now. Like the sores and blisters are just really bad. And she says, oh, what irony, Mata, that though my memories are restored, they are not in the body of your choice because this body is dying. Why do you think I've been able to remember the things I do now? The legacy virus which has infected me is enabling this body's telepathic abilities to increase in scope, building ever more quickly with each passing moment to the point where they will burn themselves out, taking the last breath of life from me as they do so. Here then is your work of art, Mata. Finally unveiled, you restored me to life only to allow your guilt to deny us a new chance for love and place me in a body which by the cold whims of fate was destined to pass away. It happens now. I can feel it. Death is here. I have failed you, my love. Yes, Matsuo, you have. <laughs> which is great. In as many ways as you possibly could have done so. But you can redeem yourself, Mata, and our love. If you do not fail me this one last time, Take my short blade, I have but seconds left. Do not allow me to die because of this cursed virus. I beg of you, do not allow that. And the Psylocke butterfly signature is like blossoming out from her head and like growing and growing and growing. It's very cool. All of the art in this is just gorgeous. And he says, Conan, I cannot kill you again. No, Mata, my sweet, this time you do not kill me. This time, by your hand, you are setting me free so that both our spirits will be allowed to fly higher than they ever thought they could. His blade cuts cleanly, and the escalating energies building within Ravash's body are released outwards. She was a private person, he thinks. She did not want to die, feeling the thoughts of others pressing on her feverish mind. Instead, with her passing, everyone knows hers, especially one whose life has so intimately touched hers. And in America... <laughs> <laughs> Warren is driving Betsy to the airport, is my recollection, because she's like, I'm going to go to Japan and like see what I can figure out. Suddenly, Revanche's voice shouts, goodbye, my love, in like a psychic echo. Warren, I I'm sorry, something hit me in my mind. Felt so much sadness. Are you okay? She's gone, Warren. I know. I'm sorry, Bets. How will I find out what happened now, Warren? The violation to our bodies was set on such a basic genetic level that our sense confused Wolverine. Even the professor couldn't probe our minds to find the answers. Who could have done something like that to us? And why? And then Spiral goes. The answer to that one, darling Elizabeth, my old friend, is more than happy to extend a helping hand. Or six. So that's the end of Conan. The following issue, Spiral explains that it was all her nefarious scheme, etc., etc., Betsy finally goes and confronts Matsuo. There's a cool moment where she calls him Mata without realizing. And he's like, she's still in there. The narration tells us that Betsy, she's sort of lost her sense of self because she has Kanon's memories now. And she doesn't know what to do with them. And she wants to be herself, but at the same time, becoming like Ninja Psylocke has liberated her to become the fighter, the physical fighter that she always wanted to be. And she's afraid that if she loses these memories, she'll lose that freedom that she's gained. Or but, And this is where, like, again, the, the politics of, like, she turned Asian and became tough is, like, not ideal. Mm -hmm. But she's becoming the fighter that she's always wanted to be. Yes, exactly. And so Matsuo explains to her what happened after she comes in to see Niairin. One day later at the ancestral estate of Nyoiren Hanecha in the Kanagawa prefecture in Japan, she knows this place in subtle secret ways that seem to contradict the conviction she expressed to her fellow X-Men. These memories are the lingering vestiges of Kanon's past, indelibly stamped on her own mind, and she hates the thought that she will carry them forever, but hates even more the idea that if they were to fade, all of the things which Betsy has found so invigorating in this new body would pass away as well. 
the thrill brought on by the control of such a physical force, the synchronicity which comes from the unison of mind and body. This is Conan's legacy, that Elizabeth Braddock has finally, after a lifetime of unfulfilled desire, become the woman of both thought and action she always wanted to be. Niairin, I have come to speak with you, my friend. Niairin, did you hear? And he falls forward dead, thwump, onto the desk. Dead? Yes, little butterfly, dead, like our love. And it's Matsuo. You and I never had love between us, Mata. I am not Kanon. Then why do you call me by the name only she ever used? It was Spiral. She left us as part of one another. Two women who never met, but linked through body and soul by means which were out of their control. He leads her out onto the cliff where Kanon fell when they were fighting. Because of the oxygen deprivation Kanon suffered after her fall, Spiral's switching of your minds and bodies was incomplete. Since Kanon's mind was damaged when Spiral delivered her to Niairin Elizabeth, she was essentially a blank slate, a tabula rasa. He chose to use that opportunity to reteach her, to make her truly his own at last as she had never been in her previous life. Basically, he lied to her about her true origins and turned her against us all. But she was a confused creature of anger, discomforted in the use of her newfound telepathic powers. So that whenever the X-Men were around her, she projected that confusion, that anger causing us to react in kind. Yes, it pained her to learn that although Niairin had sent her on behalf of his patron, the Mandarin, to kill you and Wolverine for foiling his plans, in time she came to respect you all. How did you get all this information? They were her final thoughts. So here it's again reestablished that she was in on it. But I guess once she saw Betsy, like her brain got re-scrammed. Like it's, don't worry too much about it. (laughs) (laughs) Kanon died here in my arms. The legacy virus which killed her, ironically enough, had heightened her unwanted abilities to such a degree that she was able to cut through the cloud of her own jumbled memories and discover the truth about herself. And she projected that truth into my mind as a sort of farewell. Yes, I felt her passing yesterday. Felt her love for you, Matsuo. But now with her gone, I will never really be whole again. No. As she was dying, Kanon left me something to give to you. To take from you, actually. And he dips Betsy and kisses her on the mouth. She asked me to provide you some measure of peace by leaving me the imprinted telepathic energy she wielded and the means to take back all those memories which were Kanon's from your troubled soul. And now, as I have been able to heal you, so will I ask you to bring on a final piece for myself. He takes her katana and he wants her to kill him so that he can be with Kanon. And she refuses. She's like, you need to live and honor her because now she's gone. You gave me that telepathic shockwave. Everything that was her in my head is gone now. Matsuo puts Kanon's katana and his own katana in the grave. The gravesite says, Kanon, love that transcended body and soul. I leave you with both our weapons of death, little butterfly, and I take with me our love and promise to carry it in my heart forever. You fancied yourself an artist of death, Matsuo Suriyaba, and Lord knows you've caused enough suffering in your time. But I sense something better in you waiting to emerge if given a chance. I'm giving you that chance, Matsuo. Make something of it. Use it to create something better for yourself. It won't be an easy road to take. But if you succeed, if you find happiness, then you'll have served well to honor the memory of the woman who came to mean so much to both of us. And then she goes and meets up with Warren in Westchester. She stands on the boathouse overlooking the Spite and Dival Cove, lost in thought. I'm like, the Spite and Dival Cove is in the Bronx, not Westchester, but whatever, that's <laughs> fine. Straining to see if by chance a vestige of Kanon remains inside her soul, but she finds none. And if she mourns that loss, she gives no sign. She then tosses the bionic eyes into the Hudson River, wrapped in, we can see the letter that Kanon left for Charles, which is written in Japanese. 
For with that loss comes the knowledge that she is Elizabeth Braddock in mind and, yes, in body. So the past sinks away, eh, Warren says. But you, Betts, you can fly as high as you want to, and nothing or no one can stop you. I learned the same thing about myself. The sky's the limit, I mean. That's all I ever really wanted, Warren, to be the best I could be. Maybe in some ways, Conan helped me be that. She challenged me, made me question my identity and the very nature of my soul. But you know what? I met that challenge and became a stronger, better person for it. Yes, you did, Vance. Just as much as I hate to admit it, like Apocalypse did for me. Makes us birds of a feather, huh? It does. Perhaps then we can see how high we can fly. Together. And that's it. And I was very moved by this story as a kid. If you set aside the, the racial stuff, which is a big ask, I remember it was collected. I think the first time I read the whole thing, it was because it was collected in a trade that was super weird. It was called Transformations or Metamorphosis or something. It was three stories that are unrelated, but it was Hank being turned blue and furry in Amazing Adventures, Warren in X Factor becoming death, and this arc with Betsy and Kanon, but also the Lady Mandarin stuff. Like it basically collected the three transformations of these characters into the versions of them that 90s readers knew to explain like the backstories. The comparison between Warren and Betsy worked for me here. I was always really invested in that romance. I liked them together. And the fact that they both got put in these bodies where they didn't recognize themselves in the mirror and were turned into killing machines, it, it made a lot of sense to me. It really worked for me, them as a couple in the 90s. But that's a wrap on Revolge. <laughs> I mean, she's just done. That's in 1994. And then 15 years later, the Sisterhood arc happens oh, by God. Matt Fraction <laughs> with art by Greg Land. Domino is in Japan. She ends up, by chance, because it's Domino, wandering into a graveyard where she fights the new Sisterhood and ends up calling Wolverine and goes, hey, it's me. Yeah, I dropped the flowers off, but something happened. Who was Quantum? Which is like, dun, 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 dun. And we see that the Red Queen, not Madeline Pryor, <laughs> just to be clear, Actually, there's a bit later that I noticed that made me go like, oh, Matt Fraction did put it in the story. Because I keep saying, I'm like, put it in the story, Matt. And it actually is here if you really are paying attention. But it's very confusing. So they've stolen Conan's body. Well, Revanche's body, rather. So Betsy's original body. The Red Queen says, the vessel has been properly modified and prepared to my exact specifications and is ready to be filled. And we see that Lady Deathstrike has Asian Betsy, who this point in the story had been dead for a really long time because <laughs> this is after this is after Vargas killed her yeah except then she came back but then she was lost again with the exile so they thought she right. was dead again the following issue is the one with the cover that was unfortunately Betsy's Wikipedia profile picture for years because they were like, it's both bodies, but it's this heinous Greg Landart. This is Uncanny 509, <laughs> where it's half Asian Betsy, half white Betsy, like split down the middle. This is where Lady Mastermind goes, okay, just run it by me one more time because this is the craziest thing I've ever heard. There are two Psylocks. <laughs> which is just like a funny they're acknowledging now this story really drove me crazy because what they do is they resurrect betsy in her original body and then brainwash her into serving the sisterhood loyally or whatever and so i thought 
we're doing this thing. Finally, like we're going to fucking do it. But by the end of the story, she's back in her Asian body and the original body is dead again. It's one big psych. (laughs) Yeah. There's a very weird bit where, well, first I just want to note in uh, issue 511, I captioned this in my notes, not Maddie. Scott is narrating and he goes, body thieves, 2,939 miles from here to Westchester. The sisterhood stole Conan's body to house the stolen psyche of Psylocke inside it. Pushing Mach 5, that's 300 miles per hour. And now the Red Queen, my dead ex, Maddie, attacks my people, all to take a lock of Jean Grey's hair. Maddie's a ghost. No, she's not Maddie. She's the Red Queen. She's a psychic ghost or something, and she's looking for a new home. She chose the body of the woman we both love or loved. So that's all you get. I hope you read X-Man almost 10 years ago because otherwise this is not explained anywhere. But there you have it. She's not Maddie. She's the Red Queen. So there's a great bit where Dazzler confronts and, and they put Betsy back in her Outback armor even, like just to tease me. And they're fighting. <laughs> they cannot help you. No one can help you. And Dazzler says, oh, come on, Betsy. Are you... Betsy now or the Japanese? You know what? doesn't matter. This doesn't have to be ugly. Whoever you are in there, we were pals once. We joined the team around the same time and everything. Doesn't that count for something? I am a restless murder spirit summoned across the guts of space-time and given home in this remade flesh. And the Red Queen and Mistress Spiral remade my mind in their obscene image. I am no one you know. Not anymore. And you, you're a washed-up over-the-hill joke that stopped being funny years ago. So they start fighting. And Allie says, no need to get ugly. You know, ninja girl, there's a reason we blew out the windows coming in. Listen, can you hear it? The wind, cars, the ocean, the laughter and the screaming and the hum of everything. People out there falling in love, getting their hearts broken. This city is a symphony and I am her speaker. No. Yeah. Hell yeah. And she (laughs) melts half of Betsy's face off. (laughs) Like, it's really gross. Straight up two-faced vibes. (laughs) Allie, stop her. Dazzler, it's, it's not me brainwashed fighting it trapped. I'm sorry. And then we cut because Betsy psychic knives herself in the brain and screams and screams and screams. And then this is the really weird part. This, people say that this is canon. I don't think it is. It doesn't make sense to me. I think this is just spirals magic or whatever because no, like it just doesn't, it just doesn't work for me. Yeah. We cut and there's a Psylocke in like black instead of blue. And she says, that was a huge mistake. You will not control the vessel, even if I have to destroy us both. And they fight and fight and fight. Then there's a bit, I just wrote, still not Maddie, where Scott says, Maddie, if you're still in there somewhere, you have to trust me, don't do this. So like that (laughs) is, again, acknowledgement that this is the Maddie who was possessed and taken over by the Red Queen. But whatever, it doesn't matter. Anyway, Betsy is Asian Betsy again in her mind space, fights the evil Psylocke, tosses her over a cliff, and uh, says, no more. All of the good inside of me, stronger than all of the bad inside of you. Whatever magic the Red Queen is capable of, whatever voodoo spiral worked, Psylocke is stronger and I'm going home and defeats her or whatever. But it's not Kanon. Like, they don't ever say her name. Yeah. It's just an evil spell. So any reading orders, I love Travis Starnes beyond measure, but 
Travis Starn says that this Red Queen story is Madeline Pryor versus 616, which it's not, and also says that <laughs> that's Conan, which I don't think it is. I don't buy it. Betsy rejoins the team in her, in Conan's body, Asian again, in the swimsuit again. Such a tease. It's such a tease. It's like also the fourth time they've teased it. And this was like pretty final because then it pivots into the Christopher Yost Psylocke miniseries where the hand blows up Revanche's body, like explodes it in front of Betsy's face when Betsy goes to put it back in the ground Yeah, in Japan. It turns out that Matsu, and here I talked about this in the episode of Battle of the Atom I did about Revanche as a guest. Here we find out that Matsuo, when he was brainwashing Betsy in Kanan's body, like did have sex with her. Mm-hmm. So there's a rape element that was always implied in the story, but we never, like when he says, I had your body, but not your mind, like it, it's made explicit here. And I think that is important. I think it's important that like, as much as what happens is not okay, like to Kanan, what happens to Betsy, like in the fiction of the story is really also not okay. Like they are both- They're both victims. Victims, yeah. It turns out that all of this has been organized by Matsuo because he's trying to goad Betsy into killing him because Wolverine, this is crazy. Every year on the anniversary of Mariko Yoshida's death, Wolverine has been showing up and cutting a piece of him off. So he's now this grotesquely mutilated guy his arm's been taken off his nose his skin's been carved away and he's being kept alive with technology that like wolverine has managed to secure for him yukio has been tasked with making sure betsy doesn't kill him it's all really fucked up and betsy and logan have a fight over it eventually betsy convinces logan like this is not what mariko would want and he kind of backs down matsuo says thank you And Betsy says, no, you do not get to thank me. You took everything from me, everything I was my whole life. I know, it's a horrible thing to lose oneself. I look at myself in the mirror and cannot reconcile what I see with who I am. This is what I've done to people, and for that I'm truly sorry. Are you ready? I am. I knew it would be you, Elizabeth. British people are so very dependable. And she chuckles despite herself. And then she takes him into a mind space where he's whole again. And he says, the pain, it's gone. Hello, my love. Conan, I have missed you so much, Swo. Now, finally, we will be together. Thank you, Elizabeth. Make it quick. And she kills him. And that is, it's interesting because Conan, right, is the goddess of mercy. Mm-hmm. And this is Betsy choosing to embody mercy as a principle to this man who ruined her life, violated her, raped her, turned her into a person she doesn't recognize, but at the same time also did give her her heart's desire of making her a warrior. So she has this very complicated, like throughout the miniseries, when she keeps trying to defend him from other people trying to kill him so that she can kill him herself, she's also just like, why am I defending Matsuzuriyama right now? Like, what is this? I like this story. I do think that the art, unfortunately, is really cheesecakey in a way that I think undermines it. Like, it's very... This is a problem with Asian Psylocke historically, and I think that Hellions avoided it in a way that I really appreciated for the most part. I mean, she was still in a sexy costume, but she looked powerful. In this, like, she's like, I'm going to kill Matsuo, and, like, 
it's an ass pose or whatever. Like it's not, yeah. there's nothing dignified about it. You know what I mean? And that's mm-hmm. a problem I've sort of always had with it. Um, so that's that on that. That miniseries is in 2010. In 2018, we get Mystery in Madripoor where finally 24 years after she died in Soul Possessions, Conan returns from the dead when Betsy reconstitutes her own body using Sapphire Sticks' power we suddenly cut to Kanon holding up her psychic knife to a guy's throat. Stay silent, stay calm. I just have a few questions. It says translated from Japanese, like in the old style editorial bubble. And it says to be continued. What did you think when she came back? Like, what was your reaction to this story of Betsy not being Asian anymore? And then the reveal here at the end of the story that Kanon was alive. At first I thought it was another fake out. <laughs> like, <laughs> I can't like blame the sisterhood you. Arc, you know, it's like you can only take so much, you know, teasing and everything. Yeah. But then I, you know, as soon as I started opening my mind to it, thinking this could be it, it was like a fist pump. You know, I'm like, yes, she is finally back. You know, and hopefully they can do something with her this time. You know, like give her her own storyline, make her her own person, and and finally they fixed it. You know, hopefully permanently. Yeah, I remember Charles Pulliam Moore wrote a really interesting piece about it at the time. He was just my guest last week for the Stepford Cuckoos. He was like, this is good. It's good that they did this, but it will only actually be good if Kanon gets to be a major actual character. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, you've taken away the Asian superhero and replaced it with nothing, mm-hmm. even if it was messy. Like, she couldn't have stayed as she was, but it's not enough to just turn her white again. Right. There's 30 years worth of readership now for whom this was like an important Asian superheroine, even if the backstory was messy. He was like, I'm skeptical that they're going to actually commit. What was heartening to me was immediately thereafter, you know, I really like Matthew Rosenberg as a writer. I think he's a great writer. I think that his run on Kenny X-Men is not great. And part of that is because he was making time before Hickman and he knew it. It's messy to me. This is the story where Rain gets murdered in a hate crime that was very controversial because it evokes violence against trans women very specifically in an allegorical way. Mm-hmm. But this is where Conan returns. She has a cool costume here. It's the Ninja Psylocke bathing suit costume, but it has a purple unitard under it like Revanche did. Mm-hmm. And a mask and hood. Yeah, from like the Outback. Basically, Joseph, the clone of Magneto, has gone crazy and is impersonating Magneto. And they've just dealt with like him and all of that. And then suddenly his head gets chopped off from behind. She always does how to have an entrance, that, that dramatic entrance. Yes. I love it. <laughs> and they go, holy shit, Betsy, what the fuck? <laughs> and she says in Japanese, I am trying to remember you, X-Men. I am nothing. That's not Betsy. And Juggernaut goes, I didn't know you were going to kill him. (laughs) And Havoc, and this is fun that it's Havoc, given Hellions, goes, we didn't do that. She's not with us. (laughs) And Cyclops says, Wolverine, what's going on? It's Kanan. But she says her name is, it's hard to translate, but it means nothing. Why'd she kill Joseph? He was a weapon. He would be used to erase mutants from the earth if he was not stopped. She's babbling about him killing mutants. And then Danny freaks out because she can sense something terrible has happened. And Havoc goes, 
tell fake Betsy here to let Danny go or she's going to lose her head next. <laughs> and Danny <laughs> says, no, no, it's not her. It's Rain. Wolfsbane is dead. Wolverine is furious about what has happened to Wolfsbane and he and Kanan go on a mission of revenge together. This part of it is kind of like them teaming up was fun. I'd like to see them on a mission together. Yeah. Now their vibe is cool. And this is where her characterization, her new characterization, I think starts to kind of come together because she is just really uncompromising. Like, yeah, let's kill these Mm -hmm. people. I'm into it. Like, let's just fucking kill them. (laughs) And her... The, how she interacts, I notice, is a lot different than how Betsy interacts with Wolverine as well. Yes. Betsy, you know, they got this good vibe going on. There's nothing playful here. Yeah, she's like, she knows he's full of shit. Yeah, she's <laughs> like, know? she's like, you're a loser, but they did murder this girl. So yeah, let's go kill him. Let's do yeah. it. There's a great bit where Havoc, again, <laughs> yes. interrupts them. And he's like, your brother sent you to stop me, Alex. No, I'm here because I'm going with you. He turns to Kanan and says in Japanese, if he won't move, you take control of his mind and move him. And she goes, or you could just use your claws. And Havoc says, really cute that you two think you're the only ones who speak Japanese. Guess what? I took a year. I know she just called me handsome. You're not going. (laughs) It's not your call. It is. It's my car, Logan. What are you going to do about that? That's exactly why you're not going. Nobody should want this. Stay with your brother. Stay with the team. They need you here now. You don't think they need you here? This is what they need me for. And he and Kanan drive off in Alex's sports car to go kill these guys. Meanwhile, there is a funeral happening for all of the X-Men who were apparently killed by Nate Gray and for Rain. Like, her death is what compels them all to finally, like, have a service. We hear the speeches at the funeral while Logan and Kanan are entering this house. He says, you don't do anything unless I say. And this guy goes, who the hell are you? And why are you in my house? It's these like bros playing video games. He's like frat boys and Wolverine. And they're still speaking Japanese, by the way, this whole time. Not the frat boys, but like Wolverine and Connor are only speaking to each other in Japanese. He says, which ones? Her butterfly psychic signature pops up. She goes, those four, not him. And points at one of them. (laughs) And then in English, he says, Merry Christmas, pub. You get to leave. What is run? And that guy runs away. And then he says, show me. It was them. Trust me, Logan. I need to see it. She psychic knifes him and says, so be it. I'm sorry, Logan. And again, like, I do feel like Rosenberg kind of gave her some characterization here that carries through to Hellions. Again, the compassion that she has. Mm -hmm. The O.N.E. Office of National Emergency guys fucking show up yet again. Fuck those guys and prevent them from killing the murderers who, like, frankly, deserve to die. Then they end up confronting Emma, which is a fun bit. This is when Emma is the black king of the Hellfire Club. It's spinning out of Inhumans versus X-Men, which was not a good time for Emma, but this is Rosenberg starts to dial it back as best he can. There is one great exchange between her and Kanan, which she says, (laughs) she turns to Mystique, who's the white king at this point, and she says, let our gods do their job, white king. They're getting murdered, Emma. That is their job. And Khan is just like <laughs> slicing through Hellfire Club guards. Your plan ends here. And Emma turns to Diamond and deflects her katana with her arm and says, I thought I'd like you more without that annoying princess living in your head. But I don't. <laughs> that's just like, that's a fun bit. 
she tries to like throw Kanan off her game by transforming a couple times into different people telepathically, like with illusions. She becomes Lady Deathstrike, then she's Electra, then she becomes Spiral, and then she becomes Kanon, like in the outfit Kanon's wearing. Kanon is not deterred at all. And she says, interesting. Usually being attacked by your own body has more of an effect. Maybe I just picked the wrong you. And then she becomes Asian Betsy with the purple hair. And that makes Kanon freeze for a second. And Emma says, thought so, and stabs her in the shoulder, which is like, again, it's a good characterization moment. But then when we see them all again, the evil general guy who Emma has cut a deal with from the ONE goes, where's Psylocke? She's not Psylocke. They just shared a body. I don't know. Seems to have vanished in the commotion after your stormtroopers arrived and royally botched everything. They saved your life. I was doing just fine. So she sort of disappears out the back between pages. It's not really well done, honestly. And uh, that's the last we see of her until Krakoa. (laughs) So, I mean, you know, this arc, it was nice to see her, but she doesn't get to do that much. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't interact with Betsy because Betsy's been apparently killed. Like, she's one of the people X-Man sends to the age of X-Man reality. So she's not even there. So they can't deal with any of that. Yeah, I I do wonder what was happening between this issue and Krakoa time. Where where, where was she, you know, settling old old debts? Because the next time we see her is in the first issue of Excalibur on Krakoa. It's a cameo where basically Betsy is feeling super uncomfortable. Everyone's like, hey, Psylocke. She's like, just Betsy's fine, please. Like, because she's still feeling weird about being Psylocke in her own body. Because she was just in Cotton's body as Psylocke for so long. And that's the running joke on that issue too, is changing the names with A, you know, like Apocalypse and everything. Yes. <laughs> she turns around suddenly because she gets sort of like a, a tiny little psychic, hmm, something that gets her attention. And she turns and Kanon's standing right there. They just like sort of lock eyes and then Kanon turns and walks away. And that then takes us into Fallen Angels. I knew you'd be dreading this one. (laughs) Here's the problem with Fallen Angels. I'm just going to, like, I don't want to dig too deep into this, honestly, because I don't like shitting on recent stuff. Mm -hmm. It's awkward for me because I know a lot of people working at Marvel and on these comics and stuff. I really, really hated this comic. (laughs) I think the art does it no favors. Right. I feel for Brian Edward Hill because I think that the art really hurts the book. It doesn't fit at all. It doesn't fit the tone. It's also just, I, frankly, I find it unpleasant to look at, mm-hmm. which is not helpful. But the big problem I have with it is, you know, we've talked about how there are problematic things with Betsy's plot with regard to Kanon's body and all of that. Right. But I don't think that Kanon as a character as presented in the 90s was herself outside of being like a sexy ninja, racially problematic. Mm -hmm. The new retcon backstory that is given to her here feels bad to me. What we learn here is that she was raised by the hand from birth as a killer. It's very Cassandra Cain. And like when they did it with Cassandra Cain at DC, lots of Asian people were like, I like this character, but her backstory feels racially tropey, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. To do it again here 20 years later is a little crazy to me when like this is not, Kanon is not an Asian woman who was trained from birth as a killer like a lot of other characters in superhero comics. Like there was no need to give her this. It also gives her 
the like tragic lost baby storyline, which is another very tropey Asian woman storyline. That's Miss Saigon, Madam Butterfly, all of that. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe like Madam Butterfly was the idea, right? Because of the butterfly motif. But I just, to me, it's like, why are we saddling this character? Like you have a chance, an opportunity right now to completely redefine who this new Psylocke is because she has no backstory beyond the stuff with Matsuo. Matsuo is referenced a couple of times in this, but otherwise is not around. We find out that she had a different lover who she had a baby with, and so the hand murdered him and took the baby from her and gave the baby a butterfly tattoo before they took her away. And that's why Kanan hates butterflies. Yeah. And the dialogue didn't really, I don't know. Well, she's like, she's like a Zen master in this. Yeah. Like she's constantly delivering like fortune cookie proverbs. Yeah. It's like, who talks like that? That's all I kept thinking about. Like who really talks like that? The way that she's written felt very, I don't know, just like it was very like an Asian person Mm -hmm. in a very tropey way that I thought we were like trying not to do anymore. Yeah. And it also just fully disregards everything that was established about her in the 90s, which is a bummer to me. Like, again, it's only like five issues to read. It's like not, and there's enough references to the stuff that like he did read them, I think. So it's a choice he's making to throw it all out and to give her Mm -hmm. instead this very stereotypical, cold, emotionless Asian warrior with no name. Like Kanon is like a title she was given. It's a shackle. Yeah, which, like, I hated that, and I'm glad that... Because, again, like, she has no name. Like, I am just this one or whatever is another, Mm -hmm. like, Asian woman trope in fiction like this. Mm -hmm. I just... I don't like it. There are two things I like about this book as I was reading back over it. One of them is the relationship she sort of forges with Magneto, which I would love to see pulled out more. Mm -hmm. There's a great bit where... He says to her toward the end of the of the story, when I was a boy in the camps, a man said to me, we are only what happens to us as children. I would tell you to let humankind save itself from what it has created, and I would mean those words, Psylocke. But you want justice. You want to be justice. The boy inside of me will always understand that. You are rare among us, Psylocke. You understand the gift of Krakoa. You understand heaven because you have lived through hell. You never need to ask my permission to act again. You have my trust, my will, and my assistance. That is cool. The bad guy in this is... (laughs) Forgettable. (laughs) Yeah, he's this AI called Apoth that it turns out Kanon didn't kill when she was ordered to by the hand because she was working for the hand again, which doesn't make any sense. Because again, the whole point is that Niran is like, Kanon would never work for the hand. But now we have all these flashbacks to her being like a hand assassin. So here's actually the thing that I was mentioned before um the hand like you said like your theory about her possibly breaking away from the hand like possibly when they killed her lover and took away her baby maybe right. something like maybe that she snapped. left yeah yeah but my other thing was i remember reading that there's different branches of the hand there are but niran explicitly wasn't with the hand like he refers yeah. to like your masters and their demon lords and like all of that and you know like mm-hmm. it's just it just doesn't make sense the other thing i do like here is the the groundwork that's set between her and sinister yeah which bears fruit in hellions obviously the thing i really really hate about this book more than anything else 
I don't like the backstory, but I can deal with the backstory. I can deal with it. Mm-hmm. What I really hate is the retcon here that implies that when Betsy was in Kanon's body, Kanon was like trapped inside it conscious. Yeah. That's simply not true. If you go back to the original story, there's a whole point made of the fact that every trace of Kanon is erased from Betsy's mind by the end of Soul mm-hmm. Possessions. And that's victimizing her further in a way that I really think is unnecessary and gross. Because then it's like, it's bad enough that some other person had your body for 30 years of publication, killed people, fucked people, did all kinds of things with your face, became Psylocke, this like superhero who's a public figure, looks like you. you were there for the ride. But to say, like, she was trapped inside the whole time screaming and couldn't move, like, I'm sorry, that's just, it's unnecessary. It's tacky to me. Mm -hmm. I don't like it at all. Mm -hmm. And I think it's best ignored. It's just, frankly, it's a continuity error. It's a mistake. This book is just full of mistakes and mistakes that I think disrespect Kanan as a character Mm -hmm. in a book that's supposed to be about her. That's what's so weird to me about Yeah. So I don't want to dwell any further because, you know, I don't like being super negative on this, this show, but I, I just, I just really don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> and now I will say the moment where she goes to meet Apoth and telekinetically grows butterfly wings and shoots up into the sky. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. That splash page. And her, her whole get up that costume that she made also. Mm-hmm. I think some people thought that was corny, but I'm like, I also liked in The Last Jedi when like Leia force pulled herself into the ship from space. I like a moment that's like a cool telekinetic power moment. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that Apoth summoned her, like part of him was good. I, it's like, it does, He thinks of her as his mother because she didn't kill him. And mm-hmm. so it's also like Kanan the goddess has like a baby like that. She is a mother goddess. Like that's part of the, it feels like he saw a statue of Kanan with her child and was just like, that's what I'm going to do. Like, and it, it just, <laughs> it doesn't fit the character beyond the name really. Yeah. There is an interesting moment where she and Betsy are like both training and we see like in the nineties, them doing the same poses. Mm-hmm. She's like just watching Betsy from afar. And she says, we, We together, one body and mind, we together. I cannot blame you, Elizabeth. I will forgive you once I can no longer feel you and we are finally apart. And that I think sets up the Excalibur arc pretty well. There is a very funny moment earlier, like early in it, where Betsy walks up to her at a campfire where everybody's like hanging out with Dazzler and she's like, Psylocke, I thought we could. She goes, we don't need to and walks away, which I think (laughs) is pretty funny. And then we get into Hellions, which I love and is, I think, like the highest quality book of the era. So it's, it's a real roller coaster. <laughs> what do you have to say about Hellions? It is, same here. It's my, my favorite of the Krakowin era so far. Um, Zeb Wells did an amazing job of fleshing out her character without making her like stereotypical. He made her, you know, this strong, you know, still cunning woman who is learning to care. Um, and learning that she's not a bad person, right? Like, yeah, like, like she can do good. Yeah. And this is the thing that 
I think rescues the Fallen Angels characterization to some extent is that like Fallen Angels is her constantly talking like Betsy Braddock was the hero. I was the shell. And it's like Betsy's actually kind of a bad person too. And like that's the point mm-hmm. kind of is that like being transformed into someone else gave Betsy an excuse to do things that you might consider immoral or amoral. Kanon was actually the better person of the two of them. That's the point of soul possessions. Like she's the one who is merciful and compassionate and generous. I do love her role as the leader of the Hellions. I love her dynamic with Sinister. I love that we get rid of her daughter by the end of the story because I don't think that's something that she needs to be saddled with for the rest yeah. of time. I mean, I think, you know, with her wanting to get her daughter back, I think in the end, even if she was able to get her daughter back, she's such a restless spirit that I honestly don't know if she really would have been happy being in one place playing single mom. Right. Raising a kid. We see that in the murder world fantasy where she's just like, she never knew this child. The child is an idea Mm -hmm. to her. She doesn't know her name. She never named Mm -hmm. the kid. Right. At the same time, it's her daughter and she's a mother And there's something really primal there. And like, if I can protect my child, I will. But her child's dead. It's really a story about grief Mm -hmm. and about letting go. Sinister is able to hold it over her that he has this copy of her kid on a hard drive. My friend said that Kanan's daughter is an NFT, which made me really laugh. Specifically (laughs) because like, in the sequence where Sinister's lab is destroyed, he says, what makes her different from our Krukoan backups is that there's only one. And I'm like, it is truly like a non-fungible daughter. <laughs> Much more valuable than an actual NFT. The Murder World arc is also really gorgeous because there's a whole sequence where like Conan grows old fighting monster Betsy's in ninja bathing suits for 30 years. Getting that aggression out. <laughs> yeah, and because of the sliding time scale, it can't have been 30 years that Betsy was in that body, but to us it was. So this mm-hmm. gives us like 30 years of them struggling, you know, like in a way that exists in the story. She's rescued because she calls out for John and is able to merge their mastermind illusions together because her telepathy, which was Betsy's power, but she retained it after she came back in Mystery and Madripoor. She is becoming stronger and more confident in it. Mastermind is surprised by how powerful she is. Mm-hmm. Her romance with Grey Crow is also just like so expertly done, builds so perfectly and slowly over the course of the whole story. Also, like the way that she initially is very dismissive and contemptuous of these people, but by the end really cares about them, particularly like the way that her relationship with Alex develops over time is really interesting because Alex and Betsy have like a fraught history. (laughs) And so he's like, just not really a pro Silox generally. I love that at the end of the murder world arc, when like she allows Sinister to like create his illegal clone farm because he's holding the threat of her daughter over her head There's a data page at the end where she says, I did not say never again, nor did I think it. Every atom in my body screamed it, but the sound was a hollow thing. It was much too late. Hellions continues to play out. We get the Excalibur arc where she's the one who's able to rescue Betsy. Before that, we get the alternate universe where she's Warren's ex-wife, which I think is really funny. (laughs) And shows that, like, you know, the attraction there he loved Betsy, but also like there is an attraction there and he could have loved Conan if they'd ever met, you know, like it's Mm -hmm. just an interesting might've been 
as we said, she basically tells Betsy, like, get your shit together. And then they work together to defeat Malice, who's like a body snatcher. So that is evocative there. And then as Hellions goes on, eventually she confesses her betrayal of them all to Sinister, but explains he has my daughter. And everybody's like, oh, well, especially Grey Crow is like, say no more. It's fine. Like, you don't have to say anything. But then... Her daughter is killed on Emma's orders, not like because Emma says kill her daughter, but Emma says blow up Sinister's chimera farm. Mm -hmm. You can tell by the end that Emma knows she's caused a problem for herself because this is not a woman you really want to fuck with. Mm -hmm. She says to Scott... I might need your help with Conan. There was something between her and Sinister. I don't know where she's at on this. Sinister, of course, because he's a member of the council, can't actually be punished because they have to keep up appearances. So Conan's just sort of suffering in silence. And uh, Cyclops says to her, I think this is about Sinister. You were close to him, maybe close enough to get dirty. He had something I cared about very much, something I hoped if returned would wash away a lifetime of sins. These were my plans. Unfortunately, the council had others. The council. Conan, if you're going to move on them, I have to... Do I look like someone who blames others for their sins? And she starts punching the wall with her psychic knife. Do I? Crack. Do I? Where are you going? Away. To hunt the evils of the world without noble cause. To court death and hope it takes me. I was tasked with keeping the Hellions in check. If only I had known, they also tasked another. But then she hears that Nanny was attacked... She knows Orphan Maker is going to pop off, so she leads her Hellions into one last battle. It goes poorly. The character file I explained to Hellions ends. And now she's going to be on Marauders. What did you think about that? Are you excited about that? What are your feelings? I'm really excited. Um, I don't know a lot about a lot of the characters other than Kate Pride. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a little bit about um, Doc and... The two of them have a lot in common, and I'm interested to see them interacting. Like, I think that's going to be fun. They, I mean, especially now that this backstory that she was given in Fallen Angels, they were both, like, raised as killers, like, in that, you know, mm-hmm. way. I think that they are both people who, like, think of themselves as bad and want to be good, and I think that could be cool to explore. So I'm interested to see where that goes. And I'm just really excited that she's, like, an A-list X-Man. That's so fucking cool. Yeah. I never thought this would happen, you know? And it seems like, oh, I, I saw the previews with her and Cassandra. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't tell what was happening in, in the scene, but it almost looks like Cassandra is like kind of shit talking her. Yeah, it looks like she's about to kick Cassandra's ass, which is a really <laughs> funny like the idea of them interacting. It feels like it will be spiritually a successor to the vibe in Hellions of her dealing with all these villains and dealing with Sinister. So that mm-hmm. I think is smart because that dynamic of her as like someone who she thinks that she's a really bad person, but she's actually not. She's actually like a mm-hmm. very moral person, much more than Betsy, actually, which is like, again, yeah. part of what I think is interesting about the two of them and which I think Zeb understood. So, yeah, I'm just really excited to see where she goes from here. I'm really excited about everything that has happened for her and with her in Hellions and and leading into this new book. And I'm excited to see Steve take her for a spin. He writes great action comics. So I have no doubt that she's going to have a lot of cool action sequences. But there was also an emphasis on, like, the New Marauders volume is going to be much more about rescue and that stuff. And Kate recruits her basically by saying, like, I understand that you've suffered an incredible loss and 
I want to make sure that doesn't happen to anyone else. Like, will you help me? And I think that that is a human way to help the character relate on a level that's not just cool ninja punching stuff, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, there was a scene in the annual where Kanon was helping Kate look for Dokken and they're in his room and she was like looking at his picture and kind of, it looks like she was envying him finding a family. Yes. And so like you could see that she, she longs to belong somewhere, have purpose. Yeah, she says the rest of the room, he was happy in this space or trying to be. Scout Wolverine, his thick-necked father, at least someone's found family. And Kate says, on my boat, we're family. There's also a cool, she does like a cool little mutant circuit with Tempo at one point where she looks into the past by linking up her telepathy with Tempo's time control. So that's cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's, it'll be really exciting to see. Kind of what Rachel can do, but like she needs mm -hmm. Tempo's help to do it. But that was cool. So yeah. I, like, I'm excited to see like more of that. Where they take her powers and mm -hmm. everything, how creative they get with it. And she and Bishop, I think, have like a good vibe right away. Like they're both people who've like seen some fucking shit. And you mm -hmm. can tell that they're going to relate on that level. I think it's going to be cool. So I'm just very excited about all of that. I think now is a good time for us to get into the questions. Okay. A lot of people wrote in for this episode. And I want to thank everybody who wrote in, especially a lot of Asian American and Asian listeners wrote in with very personal stuff. I'm going to try to get through as many questions as we can, but we can't get to them all. So just thank you again for writing in with your Kanon questions with a silent W. Sarah Lee writes, hello, Connor and Caroline. Really excited to finally be getting an episode of one of my favorite mutants, Connor herself. As a reader of Chinese descent living in a former British colony, I love that this Asian character got to have her own story and her body back rather than be an unfortunate, messy past of my problematic wife, Betsy Braddock. Love her to death, but yeah. Cutting right to the point. <laughs> I personally see Connor taking on the Psylocke name as an editorial or branding decision since the iconic look of the East Asian ninja in a swimsuit is heavily tied to that code name rather than a narrative choice that makes sense for the character herself. I have trouble wrapping my head around Kanan wanting anything to do with a name tied to her body that was vehicled by someone else for years, much like how she wouldn't dye her hair purple, because that wasn't her look, but a choice someone else took. If the creative decision of Betsy taking over Kanan's body is heavily symbolic of British imperialism, Kanan in the Krakoa era in Mayas represents former colonies that cast off the names forced upon them by their colonizers when they become independent. My question is, do you agree with the decision for Kanan to take on the Psylocke code name outside of a branding standpoint? Should there have been a character arc where Conan addresses her reasons for wanting to take on the name of a woman that got to live in her body who did all sorts of things with it when she herself was denied that opportunity? Lastly, what alternative codenames would you suggest for Conan? I personally like the name Revanche since it's something she came up with for herself and would have been glad to have her return to it. Best wishes, Sarah. The thing about Revanche, I mentioned earlier the political associations, but also it's a name she came up with when she believed she was Betsy. Now she would be reclaiming like in the way that Beth's, like, she thought she was as Beth. So it would be appropriate now. But I think that it's hard to set aside the branding concern because the branding concern is so hugely a thing that is important, honestly, like to the character and the character's like continued existence. I mean, I, I think that the fact that she's become a really A-list character so quickly is in part because Hellions was so great, but also because a lot of the work was already done in terms of like, there's Psylocke and you can point at her. But what do you think about her choosing it in character, Caroline? Like, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, it's just like she said, what was that, in Fallen Angels, Betsy had her body for almost 30 years. I mean, the least she could, she's going to keep that name. Like, Yeah, I'm taking this. Yeah, I'm taking that name. So it's one thing that she could take, you know, out of all this and claim it. She doesn't really know who she is right now. 
she's finding herself and everything. So I, I think it kind of makes sense that she doesn't really know what to call herself right now until she finds out. I see it as a way for her to reclaim some of that, like mm-hmm. what was done with her body. Like Psylocke is a person who has like, Psylocke is famous. Like this is a superhero that people are aware of. She's a person who has teamed up with the Avengers when the X-Men team up with the Avengers. Like she's been around. And so saying that is me, like Emma in Rosen County says, she's not Psylocke, they just shared a body. And what Conan is saying is, no, I am Psylocke because my body is Psylocke. Mm-hmm. She's rebuking. This is why the like, the, the bit in Fallen Angels where she's like, Betsy Braddock was the hero, I was the shell. I'm like, that doesn't quite make sense to me because what makes sense to me is her saying, Betsy Braddock used my body to be a superhero and I mm-hmm. choose to take that from her now. Like I'm going to take the name and Betsy is okay with her having it, which is also important, I think. Because mm-hmm. Betsy gets it. Betsy gets, I had a joyride in your body for 30 years. As hard as it was for me to deal with it, I also had a lot of fun and you were just dead and I was using your hands to kill people. Right. So you should have not just the name, but like the clout of being the X-Man Psylocke more than I should. At this point, pretty soon, Conan will have been Psylocke longer than White Betsy ever was Psylocke. Right. In terms of total time. She becomes Psylocke in 1986 in the New Mutants Annual. The body swap happens in 1989. She turns back into White Betsy in 2018 and becomes Captain Britain in 2019. That's three to four years, max. Pretty soon, Kanan from 2019 to 2023, 2024 will have been it longer than Betsy, will have been Psylocke, because Psylocke is that design. Mm -hmm. It just is. And so that's the branding concern. I think, though, that it makes sense for Kanan to take it to say, I deserve to have this because it was built on my back. Right. And she's right. Mm -hmm. Because half the appeal of that character, the reason she became so popular was because she was a sexy Asian ninja lady. Like that was part of her. In the 90s, ninjas were a hot commodity. Like it was like a thing. It became Mm -hmm. a cliche. She was an exemplar of the bad girl art style of the time. You know, it's just, I I think that she deserves to have it. And I say that as a Betsy fan. And since all Betsy ever wanted was to be Captain Britain, like they're both getting what they deserve to have, I think. Mm -hmm. Which is the best possible resolution to this problem, which is otherwise just like an inescapable problem. Yeah. I do know some fans would have been happier if they had on panel them kind of passing down that mantle from Betsy to... I would have preferred that too, but Mm -hmm. I think we just have to imagine it. Well, it's one of, I mean, another problem I have with Fallen Angels is that Kanon like hating Betsy is not, that's not what the 90s story was like at all. Right. At the end of that story, they were working together all the time and they had developed a mutual respect and like Kanon's dying wish was to liberate Betsy from any of the pain that Matsuo had done to Betsy. Yeah. So it just doesn't make sense. Like, I don't get how a lot of the decisions in Fallen Angels happened because they don't try. Yeah. Yeah. They had already settled everything pretty much like, you know, by then. It would have made perfect sense for her just to come back and Betsy to be like, I've been feeling weird calling myself Psylocke in my own body again. 
it doesn't feel right anymore because I was you when I was Psylocke for so mm-hmm. long. It's just like when the scene where she was trying on all her gowns for the Hellfire Gala. Which I loved that. Right? It doesn't even occur to her until Conan walks in. They don't fit me anymore because it wasn't my body. This is why they don't fit, because I had them made for your body. Mm-hmm. And then Bessie's like, you should have these. And Conan's like, they're my size. And Bessie says, yes. And Conan says, but not my taste. And Bessie says, no. And then they burn them while Conan drinks a beer, <laughs> which is great. I would have liked them to have a more cordial relationship from the beginning. Mm-hmm. But I think that Hellions and Excalibur fixed it, so it's fine. Yeah. The problem of the story has always been that what happens to Kanon outside of the fiction is racist and the story is fucked up. But like Betsy herself did not do anything wrong to Kanon, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like right. the, there's no good way to navigate through that except to mm-hmm. do what they've done, which is like, there's the line that Conan says to Betsy and Excalibur that I always think of, she goes, it isn't to be solved. It just is this thing between us. Right. We can't fix it. So we just have to move on with our lives and you have to stop making it all about you and how guilty you feel. Cause like, that's not helping me at all. That's just you being self-indulgent. Mm-hmm. So get over it. We need you to like, <laughs> put on your Captain Britain suit and come do your job. Like stop moping and being like a, shrieking banshee ghost in other world like get it together mm-hmm. i think that makes a lot more sense and he's very her because once she got her memories back in the 90s she was very very matter of fact about all of it she goes to matsuo and is like you fucked up <laughs> like it's very <laughs> much she doesn't blame betsy she's like the thing that you did to us you know yeah she was angry at the right person at that time yeah, and part of the problem is that Matsuo is dead, and because he's a human, we can't bring him back on Krakoa, and so she can't confront him. So in Fallen Angels, it was like she has to confront Bats. It just, I don't know. It was going backwards. Yeah. Dave Katzen writes, greetings, Connor, and most honorable Caroline. I can't help but wonder how exactly Connor has climbed the ranks so quickly following her resurrection. In reality, I understand that Psylocke's Asian redesign is iconic, and functionally two generations of readers grew up with that being who Psylocke is. So I understand Marvel wanting to keep the IP alive, even if Betsy Braddock no longer embodies it. And Hellions was a very successful title. That said, I have trouble reasoning out the justification in-universe. As much of a head-scratcher as Fallen Angels was, at least that felt like the type of story a former assassin without very strong ties to the X-Men would have. How she earned enough of the Council's trust to be the Hellions' Rick Flagg or Luke Cage eluded me a little, but then it made one of Krakoa's great captains? Okay, was she around in the 90s longer than I remember her being and proved herself then? She just seems like such an odd pull for that kind of leadership role. Why is it that she's been promoted over a hardly short list of characters who've been proving themselves as leaders and fighters for the mutant cause for decades? Again, this is something that makes more sense out of story than in story. You're not wrong. However, she was on the X-Men for like a year and change, and this was a time when... As Josh Cornelian and I talked about in the Stacey X episode, before like 2004-ish, it was really hard to become like a member of the X-Men. There are not that many of them. And Revanche was full on a member of the X-Men. She didn't have any lines in Fatal Attractions or Blood Ties, the Avengers crossover, but she's in them, like fighting with everybody. And the X-Men were sad that she was dead. It's also, I think, important, like, I think a lot of people gloss over the Rosenberg uncanny because it was brief and because House of X was so bombastic as like a relaunch. But in a time when most of the X-Men were apparently dead, she showed up, helped them, stepped up, helped Wolverine try to avenge Wolfsbane. Like she was around. She's proved herself. Yeah. And proved herself specifically to Scott, Mm -hmm. which I think 
is the key in terms of like who he's going to tap to do the great captain thing. And then also it's that she was tapped to do the Hellions thing, I think because Sinister asked for her specifically. Right. Because he knew he had something on her. Magneto grew to really respect her in Fallen Angels. So he would have been like, sure, great. And like probably said, that's a great idea to the rest of the council. But once she was leading the Hellions, then she really proved herself over and over and over again. So it makes total sense to me that she would rise in the ranks in that way. She also is specifically tapped to replace Gorgon, who has a lot of connections to the crime lords in Asia, all the stuff in Madripoor that's going on with like the Krakoan pharmaceutical trade and everything. Like that sector of the world is is important to Krakoan politics. And she also has those connections. Like she knows all of like the Madripoor and Hong Kong and Tokyo crime influencer people. Influencers makes it sound like they're like on Instagram, but you get what I'm saying. Like the influential people. So I think that like she also can help fill a spot in the leadership of Krakoa that Gorgon was occupying without being like a problematic former Hydra person they have to worry about (laughs) like the morality of because she is, despite being a killer, a pretty moral person. She's the kind of character like Ilyana that Scott is always very drawn to. Like these people who have been through absolute hell and come out the other end and still have like a strong sense of right and wrong. And so it makes total sense to me In the same way that Scott respects Bishop, like it makes sense to me, you know? Mm -hmm. But I also do think that in terms of like, why does everyone on Krakoa go with it? I think most people on Krakoa just look at her and they're like, oh, there's Psylocke. Like they don't, most people are not super privy to the soap opera Betsy and Conan plot that we're all privy to, you know? Right. And she has the stomach to get things done to, to take charge. And they know that. Patrick Talbot writes, hello, fellow revanche heads. My question may be more of a comment. Going back to mystery and mad report, Betsy telekinetically formed herself a new body, and then later we see Conan wake up alive. So, like, they just left the body there? Assuming they thought it was a corpse, couldn't you take it back and bury it? You were in this woman's body for, like, 30 years. Also, just maybe check a pulse? I just think between Betsy, Kate, Aurora, Jubilee, Domino, and Rogue, someone would have thought about this. Now, for the real question, Conan decides she's tired of Sinister's bullshit and assembles a team to murder the fuck out of him. Who would you add to the roster and why? Cheers, Patrick Talbot. I think with the body thing, I, like, I think they probably thought that the body exploded or whatever when all the Sapphire Six stuff happened. Like, but don't worry about it too much, honestly. It's a miniseries, and they had a lot of stuff to get through in a couple pages. But who would you put on Psylocke's hit squad to kill Sinister? Hmm. Probably Wolverine, Laura. Yeah. I know that not everybody liked how Laura was characterized in Fallen Angels, but I did like the bond between like the idea of her as a mentor for Laura made a lot of sense to me. So I wouldn't Mm -hmm. mind seeing them interact more again in the future. Yeah. Oh my God. I can't even think anybody that has a dark past Mm -hmm. who has similar personality as she does. Anyone who could stomach doing violence. I mean, again, I think that she and Dokken are going to be really interesting on the team together that I'm excited to see their relationship develop. I think that she would Get on really well with Yukio, actually, who's Mm. not a mutant. But, like, I would love to see... They probably have history, the two of them, right? So, like, I would love to see that. In general, I'd love to know more about, like, her relationships with all of those Japanese characters, like Mariko and the Silver Samurai and all these people that she would have known, but we never got to see them interact in the 90s. 
that would be cool. I'd also love to see her and Gambit team up again, actually, because Gambit was so fun with the two Betsy's in the 90s, like Mm -hmm. making fun of them and then flirting with them and then both just being like, shut the fuck up, Gambit. (laughs) (laughs) I want to see her interact with magic more also. That whole, that part in the first Inferno. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I they're mean, going off to Majapur to have drinks and everything. I'm like, I want to follow that. <laughs> I want to see what happens. Absolutely. I can imagine them getting into fights and everything, bar fights. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Justin Park writes, hi, Connor and Caroline. Caroline, your cosplay is fantastic. It's really lovely to see how big of a Conan fan you've been since even before her meteoric rise in the Krakoa era. Not to say anyone's less of a fan for having come to love her more recently, of course, but it's just cool to see how much love there was for this character even before she got such a big push. It just makes me even more excited to hear this episode. What's something Conan may have used her white passing privilege for while in Betsy's body, either on page or as a headcanon? Has she come to the rescue of a Starbucks barista being yelled at by an irate customer? Would she demand she get paid slightly more for an assassination job, but not not as much as a male assassin would have been paid. Did she start the Japanese equivalent of Theranos or Goop? Conversely, what do you think is the most embarrassingly white thing that Betsy has ever done while in Kanon's body? Did she request forks at a sushi restaurant? Did she have decorative scrolls on her walls with Chinese and not Japanese writing on them? Did she wear shoes in her own home? Thanks, Justin Park. <laughs> that was really funny. Well, thank you so much, Justin. Let's see. As of right now, I think the most white passing thing Kanon would probably be you know, be doing is walking down New York City without, you know, being attacked. Well, yeah. Or even San Francisco right now. Mm. As far as Betsy goes, yeah, I could definitely see her having probably Chinese art all over her walls and not really even knowing what the heck they say. She has to use Google Translate on her phone, you know, to know what they say. I bet Betsy had like a sexy tattoo in Japanese that was wrong. And Kanan got her body back and was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> like, <laughs> the way that, like, the way that, like, you know, Ariana Grande tried to get, like, seven oh, rings God. tattooed and it said, like, hibachi grill or something. <laughs> and so, honestly, like, Kanan was relieved when she had to resurrect after Ten of Swords because it got rid of that tattoo. That's a headcanon I could support. Yeah. Betsy got like butterfly in Japanese, like tattooed on her hip bone, but it actually said like ostrich. And Conan's like, what the fuck is this? Um, so, like that. Um, but, you know, what the, the point you identify about this Asian woman suddenly being in America as a white person, Justin, is like exactly what I'm saying when I say that Revanche was a character with a lot of interesting potential that was just never explored. Because particularly, she's not Asian American, right? Like she's Asian from Japan. Japan. And like the way that, Japan views white people is also complicated, right? So like Mm -hmm. the idea of her going back to Japan as this white woman now could have been a really interesting story also. And we just never really got it, unfortunately. Right, because you have so many people over there. I I read an article about somebody equating Japanese citizens like American, how they're kind of like a melting pot, but you don't really, they're not quite as accepted Right, like mixed race people in Japan, it's a whole... I mean, this is something like my brother-in-law is Chinese from Hong Kong and my sister has thought a lot about like, okay, I'm going to have to deal with the fact that my children will face racism in America. I have to like understand that better and help them even if I don't understand the experience myself or whatever. And she was talking to her husband and he was like, well, I mean, you know, when we go to Hong Kong, people are going to be weird about them being half white. So like, it's right. like, you know, it just depends on where you are. So, right. you know. I'm half Thai and there's even a village in Thailand 
that's like strictly of mixed babies over there because outside there they're I mean it's getting better they're getting becoming more accepted but yeah for a, a long time there they they were outcast you know they're basically mutts you know Right. So. Hafu is the word in Japan, I think, that's used. Yeah. It's, which is like not considered offensive, but it's just like, yeah. in English, if you called someone like a halfie, that would be like a weird thing to do. Yeah. Right? Yeah. In Thailand, it's, a, it's like Lukrung, something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I remember my sister lived there for a bit in Thailand, you know, and she's white passing, you know, she's a lot paler than me, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She wasn't treated, you know, very well over there. They were kind of mean to her you know, because of her mixed race. Yeah. So. Racism is complicated. <laughs> and like every, I mean, depending on what the dominant culture is. So I just think that the same way that Betsy facing, like she's a British aristocrat who now is Asian mm-hmm. being Kanon and like Japan's top assassin, but now I'm a Gaijin. That would have been an interesting story too. And it's unfortunate yeah. that we just never got it, you know? Mm-hmm. Francis Chin from New Zealand writes, Hi, Connor, an esteemed guest. Would you consider Canon a legacy character? She's similar to Miles Morales in that she's a person of color taking up a title created for a white character. However, as we all know, this situation is so much more complex than your standard legacy character's backstory, given that Canon in appearance has been carrying the title of Psylocke for decades. I feel conflicted about Canon. Thanks, Francis Chin. I consider her a legacy character. I do. But I think that it's exactly what you identify, which is that it's her legacy. Mm-hmm. Betsy is the one who was borrowing something, not on purpose, but she was. And now the right person has it back is sort of how I feel about it. Yeah. I mean, you heard how confused, like when we were talking earlier and I, about the 90s stories, like trying to say which character I was talking about was tough <laughs> because Psylocke is that look. It just is, you know, like it's that character. Right. She deserves to have it. And Betsy clearly feels that way, too, in the story. So I think it's good that she does. Jason Kim writes, Hello, Connor and Caroline. We've seen over the course of comics history the cyclical nature of various plot beats with regard to specific characters. The crappiness of Charles Xavier, for example. With how long the shadow of the Betsy thing is, alongside the lack of historically successful solo X-Men series, is it reasonable for me to worry that the temptation to relitigate the Betsy thing will be too tempting on a long enough timeline at the expense of instead exploring Conan's relationship with her culture? Thank you for the time. Sincerely, Jason Kim. I think that there will always be a temptation from writers to revisit classic stories, but I think that everyone is really happy with the new directions for Psylocke and Captain Britain, and I don't think they're going to change anytime soon or ever, really. I think we're good. I think this is where we're going to be. And I don't think it's a change. I think it's like Carol Danvers. I do. Like, I think that this is what the situation is now. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot of people that I've talked to that don't really believe it. They, you know, they think Captain Britain will revert to being Brian at some point. Right. And I just don't think that's the case. Yeah, I don't think so either. I don't think he's a popular enough character for that to be a thing that has to happen is the thing. It's a lot like Carol Danvers, where like Captain Marvel is like not that popular or important a character. He just isn't. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I love Brian Braddock, but he's not that essential. He was never that popular a character to the point where to keep him and Megan alive as characters, Claremont put them into Excalibur, which was an X-Men book. So having Captain Britain just be one of the X-Men now, and it's Betsy Braddock, who is the much more famous character 
I think it's just like Carol Danvers, where Carol was a much more successful and popular character than Marvell to begin with. And I just don't think it's going to change. I think we're set now. I think this is the future. Yeah. And I think that Psylocke fans who are upset about that probably just need to get over it. Like, right. I, like <laughs> at this point, it's like embrace Conan or don't. Mm-hmm. But this is how it's going to be. I really do believe. I don't think that... Marvel is ever going to go back on this. I really don't. Mm-hmm. And even if Kanon decided to get a different name, I still don't see Betsy going back to Psylocke. I don't either. I think that yeah. she's Captain Britain now for good. I really do. Yeah. Especially after the last issue of Excalibur, she specifically said like, I'm Captain Britain because I serve the people of Britain, not the nation. Like she even said, like she even rejected the the flag suitiness of it. Mm-hmm. Her new costume is not an explicit Union Jack. I think that she's decided what that name means to her and the title that it means to her and the matter of Britain and like a Britain that should be for everyone. Mm-hmm. She's making it her own now. Yeah. And I just, so I just don't, I just don't see it Yeah, changing. Jacob Soller writes, Hi, Connor and esteemed guest. I first got into the X-Men through the game Ultimate Alliance, the 90s animated series, and hand-me-down new X-Men comics. As a young queer Asian, specifically Filipino, I was always interested in Psylocke's aesthetic and costume until when I was older, I realized, wait, this is a white lady in a Japanese woman's body, <laughs> which led me through a trip down a wiki hole that didn't answer too much. Anyway, my question, or rather questions, is how do you and Caroline think Conan fits the dragon lady stereotype on Krakoa? Does her Hellion's characterization subvert the trope? Can she continue to be a badass without being a dragon lady how do you guys feel like her character will build as a captain and marauder sometimes i felt like betsy as psylocke fell into that trope but then i remembered it was a white woman in a japanese woman's body which is one of the reasons i could never really identify with psylocke before i'm excited to see Kanan as a marauder and could definitely see her further distinguishing herself from the body swap past due to what i feel like is the swell of development she's had i also want to say thank you so much connor for creating this community you constantly display your consideration for your work the space you've created and the emotions of those in it sorry i have to send it all over the place thanks jacob they then That doesn't sound all over the place at all. And I appreciate you saying that. I kind of want to read the next question too, because it's in a similar vein. Patrick Matsutani writes, Hello, Connor and Caroline. Representationally, Conan's very difficult. I think the swap back and the Hellions and Excalibur stories did a lot of work to assuage the body stuff. But a barrier for me is that Conan is still to some extent a caricature. Her origin of being a sexy ninja assassin is very loaded. And even currently, she's coached in a lot of traditional Japanese aesthetics. I do love her as a character, and I'm glad she's finally getting stories and characterization. But considering how disconnected from being a true cultural representative she is, how do you bridge the gap? I think it's hard for these Japanese national characters tied to the Orient villains like The Hand to really be representative due to the messy backgrounds and white writers not knowing what to do with them. Not that it's necessarily much better for Japanese characters to be ostensibly American, but that cultural experience is very much informed by assimilation, and I think, interestingly, is characterized through the absence of cultural touchstones. In Kanon's case, I wonder what you could do for her that would distinguish her beyond her past as a ninja and more as a Japanese woman. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thank you, as always, and much love, Patrick Matsutani. So what do you think about those questions of like her being kind of a stereotypical character versus like a fully formed Japanese woman? Going to the dragon lady question, I don't see her as being a dragon lady. She has some of those, some of the characteristics of it. Yes. You know, and how she can be somewhat kind of cold and, and bossy and strict. However, the thing I notice in a lot of dragon lady characters is you don't really see a whole lot of other emotions. I feel like Hellions on some level is about how she presents herself as a dragon lady, as like a defense mm-hmm. mechanism to these exactly. American people. And over the course of the 18 issues, you get to see the really sort of soft emotional heart that she does mm-hmm. have. 
Yeah. That's why I really liked, I know that some people didn't like that we see her crying in the Marauder's Annual when Kate finds her, but I liked Mm -hmm. that because I think that showing that privately she has a lot of emotions and is kind of a sensitive person in a lot of ways. And she was doing it in private. She wasn't doing it publicly. Right. It was like, I'm alone in my room and I'm upset that my daughter's dead, who I never got Mm -hmm. to raise or know. Like, you know, I might cry too if that happened to me. Yeah. She's not a robot. That's the thing. And part of my issue with her in Fallen Angels was that she felt very robotic to me in that. Yeah. Yeah. That, that the art again didn't thing. help because <laughs> yeah. it was... <laughs> but... She looked like some weird baby. <laughs> the like half CGI vibe of the art made everyone kind of feel like a robot. But she also just, again, it felt kind of like you put a coin in her and like a saying came out. Yeah. Having her be a really human person is the way that you Mm -hmm. get rid of that. As for like the question about making her more representational, I think that part of that is I would love to see a writer like Mariko Tamaki or someone like, like who has the cultural background, get a chance to do a one shot or something. I think that would be really Mm -hmm. cool because I think that the verisimilitude there is, I mean, I would love, I would love Demon Days by Peach Momoko was so cool. Yeah. Just having Peach Momoko do like an in-universe 616 canon story would also be really cool. She's actually Japanese from Japan, not Japanese. Right. So that would also be because that's culturally very distinct also. Like those are two Mm -hmm. different experiences. So I think that part of it is like that kind of authenticity. But the other part is, I mean, she's about to be on the ship on Marauders. If they're in Asia, like something we talked about, uh, Justin and I talked about in the Sunfire episode was that like, part of the reason Sunfire can't stick around in the classic X-Men stories is because if he's around being an actual Japanese person, then Wolverine can't be the cool guy who knows stuff about Japan. And so I think that letting Kanon actually be like an expert on that region of the world where the Marauders, because of Madripoor and stuff, are probably going to be a lot of the time. That would be cool. Like, just let her be a person who exists in that world, which is why, again, I said, like, build connections for her to the other Japanese characters. Now, unfortunately, most of those characters are involved in the criminal underworld because that's just, like, (laughs) the history of Marvel Japan. But not all of them. And, like, you could even then, like, establish, does she know Sunfire? They should Mm -hmm. talk. They never have. Things like that that would be interesting. I do think that, like, her and Yukio or her and Mariko Yoshida, like, showing different kinds of Japanese women interacting with each other, I think would be a good way to head off the idea that they're all sort of the same archetypally. Mariko, in particular, is a very distinctive character. And then Yukio is sort of like a butch, lesbian-vibing character who's like a street fighter person, which is very different Mm -hmm. from the, like, immaculately trained warrior that... Kanan is, or from the Yonanishko noblewoman that Mariko is. So I just think that that would be cool. I'd also just love to see more of those characters generally because we haven't seen a ton of mm-hmm. them in the Krakoan age, and I think they're great. Particularly Mariko, who I think is like a really great character that never really got to shine as much in the classic stuff as she should have. And I love the Scarlet Samurai direction that she went in in more recent stuff. Is that still tropey? Yes. But like those two characters, Mariko and Yukio, I think were never dragon lady. Right. You know, and I think that having all of those women interact also like she's not Japanese, but I would love to see Kanan talking to Tiger Tiger, who's a great character that I don't think we've seen in the Krakoa era. Again, I I just think that it's about having the Asian characters talk to each other more. Mm -hmm. Like we talked about this in the 
Sunfire episode. And I think that like just having Dokken and Psylocke on the team together, both being Japanese nationals, mm-hmm. is a step in the right direction. Right. That alone does a lot. I do like that Zeb didn't make... It, it was like the opposite of Fallen Angels where he didn't make her culture and everything like at the forefront, you know? Yeah. She didn't keep saying like, in my culture, we do this. Yeah. Like, and she talked normal too. Yeah. She just like spoke like a regular person. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, in future issues with the Marauders and, and anything else, I wouldn't mind them. I, I think it would be great for them to pepper in other things that talked about her culture like it like showed who she is and and what her beliefs and everything are you know what the quintessential one in fallen angels for me was is like she's speaking english but then she would just say hi yeah <laughs> and i was like are we at anime club like what is this it just <laughs> it's not oh man yeah that felt very like spanglishy to me in like the way that older comics would have Latino characters talk where it's just like they're suddenly just using a Spanish word in the middle of a sentence in a way that like, yeah. like people do speak in patois like that, but not essay in the middle of a sentence that's in English. Like that's not how people talk. <laughs> anyway. Mo Lewis writes, Dear Give, Connor, and esteemed guest Caroline of Cosplays. I'm Mo. I'm Nigerian Irish from the Republic, and I'm kind of a newer fan of the pod, so I'm not all that familiar with the format of these questions, but here we go. When I found out you were doing a Conan episode, I got so excited because Conan is a character I deeply love without knowing very much about her. There are, of course, so many things about her that I want to know, which actually made thinking of a real question pretty difficult. Eventually, I did find the question deeply held in my heart, and it's actually more of a general one. Comic adaptations in any medium are never one-to-one exact replicas of comics, and I personally believe that they're better off that way. But often the adaptation will lose something special in the original story by missing it or choosing to iron out and avoid difficult beats. In the case of Betsy Braddock occupying Kanon's body for so much of her publication history, that definitely feels like the case. Most Betsy Silek adaptations I've seen simply gloss over the white woman in Asian body complication by ignoring it altogether and leaning on the fact that comic book characters are 50% the look anyway. This leads to the unfamiliar audience assuming Betsy was simply an Asian character, something that worked for Betsy and completely erased Kanon. I wonder what the resolution to this would be now, MCU notwithstanding, even though I get why some would like to avoid it altogether and continue to treat it as a dirty little secret. Considering the impact it's had on Kanon's characterization on Krakoa and her relationships with other mutants, it feels like a waste of character depth to totally ignore it. With Kanon's bodily autonomy finally restored and stories as Psylocke now her own to tell, how do you think potential adaptations should, or also realistically would, approach this part of her character? And in fact, all of Kanon's history and character. Should we rewrite the story so the body swap never happened and both characters went straight to the people they are in Krakoa and comic canon currently? Do you think they should take that a step further and go full circle to just have Conan replace Betsy in adaptations of those stories where Psylocke played a bigger role? Do you think it could work and would be worth it to try? Or might it actually at last be easier to just unveil the awkward complications behind the curtain and let the general audience judge Psylocke themselves? Thanks, and can't wait to hear from you if you answer this question. This is actually kind of long. My bad. Feel free to edit as needed. Slan, love this question. There have been lots of discussions about this Generally, there were people who like thought that maybe Betsy and Brian should just be half Asian in a movie. I think that would be a mistake because I think that that excuses the racism of the storyline. Uh, it like makes it okay in a way that like mm-hmm. it's not. And it erases both characters in a way by combining them. It takes away the wrongness of the story and also takes Conan away entirely and makes her not exist. Right. So I don't like that as an option. I also think specifically that the Braddocks are like white aristocrats and that's part mm-hmm. of their deal. And part of Betsy's joyridiness of 
I'm a different person now when she was in Kanon's body was like the racial transformation is part of that story. She suddenly is like an exotic person who's not like the boring British lady that she once was because she always used to complain about people treating her as like a posh, prim and proper lady. And they never treated her that way once she was Kanon. And she says, once my life merged with Kanon, that's how she phrases it in Mystery and Madripoor. Because as far as Betsy's concerned, Kanan was dead, right? Like, and like she said to Matsuo, like, only we remember her now, basically, right? She was the legacy character. Like, she absorbed Kanan's life into herself. And now that they're separated again, I just don't think that combining them in that way would be a good idea. Because I think it would do a disservice to Kanan as a character. My take on this is I think that in any MCU adaptation of these characters, Betsy should never be Psylocke at all. I think that you just have Psylocke be Kanan. I think that what you do is you establish a history between them. Mm-hmm. And we don't have to know exactly what it is. I think it would be cute if like we don't ever actually know exactly what the, but like they have beef mm-hmm. or not, or they did, or like it's a long story or whatever, but there's some kind of connection. I think you introduce Betsy as Betsy Braddock, agent of strike. Mm-hmm. And then you have her become Captain Britain. And I think that you can have her be connected to the X-Men and do all of that. But I think that Psylocke needs to be Kanan because in the same way that they did with Carol, like there's no Marvel in the MCU. They jump straight to Carol as Captain Marvel. And I think that that's the way to go. Right. For the character, like it's important that the character get, if we want Psylocke to be an Asian character and for Kanan to stick as the great character that she now has become the worst thing you could do would be to do a movie where Betsy is Psylocke. Mm -hmm. Because the movie branding is so much bigger. Look at the Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver thing. I mean, like the problem now with going back and fixing the stuff with Magneto and making the mutants again or any of that, if they ever want to do it, if, if Disney ever wants to do it, The Wanda from the MCU, who's not Magneto's daughter and is not a mutant, is now exponentially more famous than any comic version of the character ever was. And that's just how the MCU juggernaut works. Mm -hmm. So the best possible thing you could do for Kanan is have her be Psylocke in a movie and just brush past it. And I think that if you do brush past it that way, could I mean, listen, here's another thing that I think would be kind of fun and that you can't do if the body swap plot happened because it would be too fucked up. But if Betsy's queer in the MCU, because I do think that the Betsy and Rachel plot feels like it's, it's happening, right? It feels like it's on. We'll see. Right. But I have a good feeling about it. It would be pretty funny if they were exes. You know, it's like, no one knows me like she does. And like, <laughs> that's why their powers are sort of connected. And like, that could be kind of funny. Yeah. I don't know if they would do that, but it's just, that would be a funny idea to me. But in general, like say that when Conan was an assassin and Betsy was a spy, they crossed paths and they have some kind of complicated history together and then just let them be who they are now, because I think that they're both better off this way. Yeah. Last question. It's a couple questions, but I liked them. Ted Liao from Tokyo writes, Hello, Connor and Caroline. Gokigenyo. That's the traditional Japanese greeting between a homo and his friends. <laughs> I have to first tell you I'm a huge fan of the podcast. I've never been into podcasts before, but listening to you and your esteemed guests dive into my favorite mutants is irresistible. Anyway, Khan's become one of my absolute favorite characters since her reintroduction. I always loved Ninja Betsy because she was a kick-ass East Asian woman with a posh accent. And as a second-generation Asian-American, I felt like I could see myself reflected in her. I guess in my head canon, the body swap made her Asian-British, so I just ignored that Betsy was in fact a white woman. You could say Conan was a small footnote for me during that time. I would only bring her up as a trivia point to tell anyone who would listen that the W is silent. 
Now that Kanan's once again back in her own body, I'm enchanted with her character development. I love seeing the familiar face in costume with a unique personality. It's also great seeing the two women build a relationship after both enduring the body swap. I hope the two of them end up like sisters, maybe trading a barb or two, but always having each other's back. Questions? I have a few, so please feel free to pick and choose as time permits. One, there are several Japanese and Japanese-American ex-characters running around. Do you think Kanan feels any affinity toward them, or they to her? As a crime lord's assassin and lover, I can't imagine she had any strong feelings toward her country. Does Sunfire see her as a fellow citizen? Do Hisako and Noriko, ugh, why do they always give these girls such old lady names, sit around with her talking about how great miso soup is? If part of her psyche was running around with Betsy this whole time, do you think she's become westernized? I can see her sheepishly ordering beans on toast somewhere, daring anyone to say a word. <laughs> I don't think that part of her psyche was with Betsy. I do think that's a continuity error in Fallen Angels. But <laughs> I love this idea. I think Shiro does definitely see her as like a fellow Japanese superhero. Like, I think, I think it would be super cool to see them talk. Mm-hmm. I also think it would be really cool if those younger Japanese mutant girls looked up to her as like a mentor. I think that would be a cool thing to see, particularly because like Armor and Surge are Japanese, like they're not Japanese American. So that Mm -hmm. would also be interesting because I feel like with Armor, we get some of that. But with Surge, if they didn't tell you that, you would never know. She just acts like an American teen. Like one of the ways I think you could maybe fix Surge from like a lot of the messiness of her past is to lean into, you know, she's like a Japanese teen with dyed blue hair like lean into this sort of like street fashion biker gang kind of vibe that that gives off in Japanese culture. Mm-hmm. And Kanon as someone who is part of like the underworld, but was always very like traditional in presentation mm-hmm. would be an interesting foil for that character. You know, there's lots of stuff you, I think you could do with that. Yeah. What are your thoughts, Caroline? Yeah. I mean, I don't think they hang out now. I do think they acknowledge each other, but yeah, it would be great to see them in stories together and interacting and, and just seeing how different they are from one another. Mm -hmm. Two, which of the X-Men still don't understand what happened with the body swap? You know, there are more than a few walking around, not quite getting which woman is in which body now. (laughs) And that'll do it. Thank you once again for your amazing podcast. I can't wait to hear this episode. and I look forward to many more in the future as well. Silent regards, Ted Liao in Tokyo. Hey, Ted Meow on Twitter and Instagram. I've joked about this before, but I 100,000% believe it's true. I don't think Charles understands what happened. I think he has forgotten all about revanche. A lot of shit has happened since then. And I think he's just like, why is this white woman doing Betsy's stuff? Feels a little problematic that this British lady stole Betsy's stuff. <laughs> I think he probably calls Con on Betsy and like doesn't think about it. Believes that Betsy is just a British Asian woman. And like Conan doesn't care enough to have corrected him. Now, by the end of Hellions, once she becomes like a great captain, I feel like maybe now he knows, but like only because Scott had to explain it to him like three times. As for who else, most of the 90s people, like, because we've seen them interact with them and like understand that she's someone else. But I feel like someone who just kind of came and went like briefly, like I feel like maybe Cecilia Reyes doesn't know that that ever happened because no one mentioned it to her because like other stuff was happening. Or like Marrow, like Marrow is just like, what? Who? You know, <laughs> like so yeah. that would probably be funny. But I think that for the most part, Conan is making such a name for herself that people now, if they weren't aware, know, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's exciting. I like that she's getting to be her own person and make the name Psylocke mean something to her. Caroline, do you have anything else you want to say about Conan before we wrap up? Not really. I mean, I think we pretty much covered everything. You know, I'm, I'm just excited to see what happens to her in the next bunch of issues and in Marauders. You know, I'm excited to see her finally rising up, becoming her own character, 
Yeah. And, and getting what she deserves really after all this time, especially being such a, a fan of hers for so long. I never thought it would happen. Honestly, like it's crazy. Never. It's crazy. I, I never thought she'd come back at all. Yeah. Much less be an A-list character in this franchise. It's so cool. So it's great not to, you know, I loved Betsy all this time also, but there's a small part of me that's always been kind of bitter at the same time. You know, mm-hmm. every time I look at her, I always think where's revenge, you know? Like, <laughs> so, but yeah, it's great now. I'm just happy to have them both in their individual spots and growing on their own. I agree. Why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you on social media and plug anything you want to plug? I am on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all under Caroline Cosplay. So if you want to follow me, that'd be great. Check it out. Her cosplay is great. Thank you everybody for listening. And and I hope this was entertaining. And (laughs) (laughs) I think it was, I think it was. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. You can follow me on Twitter at DreamOfOrganon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes plus links to the Discord server, the merch store, now featuring the new design, Focus Totality by Valentine Smith, which highlights Kanon and Betsy in their new roles as Psylocke and Captain Britain, and much, much more at Cerebrocast.com, the official landing page for the podcast. Next episode will feature writer and music musician Tom Dunn. We are going to talk about Sean Cassidy, Banshee. It is unfortunately too late to send in questions for that, but I hope you will join us. And then season two will end with episode 75 on Nanny and the Orphan Maker with Zeb Wells. We will also dig into Hellions and Conan's arc in that book. For $5 a month at the House of Zaladane tier at patreon.com slash cerebrocast, you can get an ad-free experience, MP3 versions of every episode as soon as they go up, as well as access to the secret files, bonus episodes. A new one just went up. It is a two and a half hour interview with Teeny Howard about her new book, Knights of X, the end of Excalibur, and her current run at DC Comics on Catwoman. We get into Kanon and Betsy in that interview as well. So more content with a W that's silent. I can't believe we got to the Conan episode. In the first episode of this show, I said I couldn't wait to do an episode on Conan once she had more story in the modern era. And well, here we are. Thank you as always for your support. And until next time, everybody, bye. Bye. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is 